Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald faced truth. I'm not sure about the aim of Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark. I'm not sure he's got good aim, but he lobbed another grenade towards the Pac 12 conference today. Just the latest in what has been a series of grenades thrown into the Pac-12's footprint. He was visiting campus at the University of Cincinnati and according to Justin Williams of The Athletic, Yormark tipped his hand when it came to potential expansion targets. He noted a desire to go quote-unquote out west into the fourth time zone. Quote, a program that has national recognition one that competes at the highest level in basketball and football and stands for the right things is a good cultural fit because our alignment right now and the like-mindedness of all of our member institutions is fantastic. It's never been better. The Big 12 commissioner refused to get more specific. Is he talking about Portland State? I don't know. San Diego State? Fresno State? Or maybe Utah or Colorado or Arizona or Arizona State or... Or maybe Brett Yormark is just talking. The one-time chief operating officer at Jay-Z's Rock Nation has emerged in the college football landscape as a very uh, polarizing and divisive figure. He has been on this listening tour uh, in the Big 12 in recent weeks, but today he apparently decided to do some talking, and I found it interesting that Yormark felt the need unsolicited to announce that his conference members were unified and like-minded. It's never been better. You heard the quote. Why the need to say so if it has never been better? And what are you doing lobbying another grenade into the Pac-12 footprint? What is he trying to accomplish exactly? Think about it. Think about what the Big 12 is trying to do here. Big 12's not interested in galvanizing its own members. That's not going to happen by Brett Yormark going public and saying, hey, You know what? We'd like to get into the Pacific time zone. We'd like to go west. Uh, This isn't new thinking. But the fact that he threw that out there today with a reporter that he knew would take it public is interesting. Tells me that he probably has the blessing of the Big 12 conference presidents and chancellors. And also tells me that he is trying, again, to destabilize the Pac-12 conference. Why? Why would you try to destabilize the Pac-12 conference? Why would you be at all interested in that other conference that does business in the Pacific time zone if you are the Big 12? I keep thinking about that. I'll be honest, full disclosure. I don't worry about what anybody else is writing. As a columnist that writes about the Pac-12, writes about Oregon and Oregon State, uh, lives in the state of Oregon but writes about everything going on in the Pac-12 and beyond, uh, you know, as a columnist and a writer, I don't worry about anybody else. I don't worry about what anybody else is doing. It doesn't factor. When I sit down at my laptop, I'm not thinking about anybody else 
because I'm focused on what I need to do to succeed, what I need to do to be at my best. When I get in front of this radio microphone, I'll be honest, I have no ill will towards the competing radio stations and the hosts who work there. I've got great respect for the people who make me better by being out there in the market. But I have to be honest with you, I've never listened to them. I don't listen to them. I don't worry about them. I don't look, look at what they're, I don't even follow them on social media because I'm not worried and concerned about what they're doing. I'm only focused on what I'm doing. Why is Brett Yormark in the Big 12 Conference so focused on the Pac-12? 503-417-7575. What's your theory on that? Is he just trying to destabilize the Pac-12 because he's fearful that there won't be media dollars left over for his conference if the Pac-12 gets a nice number from ESPN? Is he trying to poach a Pac-12 member and therefore uh, destabilize the conference, try to you know f uh, put some fear in the hearts of uh, the member that he's trying to steal from the from the Pac-12? I reached out to uh, a couple of ADs in the conference after your marks. Uh, comments went public this morning, and one of the ADs at one of the Four Corners universities, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, Arizona State, said this, quote, I have no idea what he's talking about. He just continues to throw stuff out to disrupt. Seems like some level of desperation, end quote. I agree with that. I think it comes off as uh, desperate. I think it comes off as fearful. I think we're starting to get an idea that the Big 12 Conference is worried about the Pac-12, when it shouldn't be, really. Like, the Big 12 should be focused on its own business, on negotiating its own media rights deal, on holding together the co a conference that is adding schools from a variety of states and time zones, from BYU to Cincinnati to Louisville and Central Florida. You have the Big 12 Conference that's on the cusp of adding all these schools and is posturing like it is a threat to the Pac-12. I'm not worried if I'm the Pac-12 about the Big 12. I'm rolling my eyes at this point. But your mark is an interesting figure in all of this expansion and this realignment. And, you know, we're talking about the former chief operating officer at Jay-Z's Rock Nation once upon a time. He's an entertainment guy who comes from the same sort of sphere of entertainment that George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, came from. But very different tactics. You'll notice Klyovkov fired some shots on Media Day. Seemingly it had enough of your mark in the Big 12 trying to destabilize his conference. I didn't think it was the most collegial remarks by Klyovkov. And I don't expect Klyovkov to fire back in this case. But I thought it was really interesting that he addressed it on Media Day. And here's Klyovkov talking about it. You know, at some point you get tired of people trying to destabilize your conference. And you got to hit back a little bit. And... Listen, I think in the grand scheme of things, having a healthy Big 12 and a healthy Pac-12 would be good. You know, to have both those in the Power Five and to have those votes in the room would be helpful. Um, at the same time, you know, we've been taking shots for the last four weeks, and I was just tired of it. But George Klyovkov firing back and then explaining why he fired back. But I want your theory on why the Big 12 Conference is so interested in trying to destabilize the Pac-12. What does it mean to them if the Pac-12 teeters? What does it mean to them if the Pac-12 splinters? Are they just interested in picking up Arizona or Utah or Colorado or Arizona State? Or is it something else that is going on out there? 503-417-7575. We've got a great show today. We'll be visiting with John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, superstar, 
of the San Jose Mercury News. He will be with us later in the program. Jonathan Smith will be with us in Hour 3, Oregon State's coach. On tomorrow's show, Jeff Tedford, the coach at Fresno State, will be joining us on tomorrow's program uh, as we start to really lock in on Week 2 of the Pac-12 Conference. But I want your phone calls on what you think the Big 12 is after. What is their aim here? What is the ultimate goal of Brett Yormark by continuing to chum the waters what do you think it's about? 503-417-7575. Steven, take a rip. What's it about? Yeah, I think he's just, like you said, I think he's throwing things out there just in case it happens, right? I think he wants to act like he's confident because if he comes across and says, well, we're not looking to add teams to the conference, the fans of that conference is going to you know, overreact and freak out. So he's getting out in front. And he's saying, you know what, we're looking to expand. We're looking to add on to this conference. And so I don't know that they have anything in place, but what he's doing is he's just making himself try to sound confident for his fans. So I think this way, you know, he's coming across as, you know, we're being aggressive and we're not going to stand back and just let teams leave like Oklahoma and Texas did. We're going to be on the aggressive and we're going to be out there trying to do some things. It feels insecure to me because if you are in a secure position, you don't have to do this stuff. You know, you don't have, you know, the Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, out front saying, you know, we want to go west. Uh, you know, Kevin Warren did sort of intimate that he wasn't done expanding, expanding, but I don't expect the Big Ten is going in this cycle to add more teams. But I find Yarmark's position interesting because, you know, the Big 12 Conference, if they are truly interested in adding a university that is part of the Pac-12, or maybe it's just San Diego State or Fresno State that he's talking about, why would you want everyone to know that? Like, why would you want to put your strategy out there? So it feels like total propaganda to me. Like, you know, he, he's just chumming the waters for the message boards and the fans that are out there. You might be right, Stephen. Sean, do you have a theory on this? You know, I think, like, the Big Ten and SEC seem to be the two big dogs right now. So I don't think he's, you know, I think the Big 12 and the Pac-12 are the vulnerable ones right now. So they kind of compare themselves to each other rather than comparing themselves to the Big Ten and the SEC. And I think, like Steven said, he's just kind of being irrationally confident about it. And I think it's some kind of ploy to, you know, um, hopefully get more confidence, have the schools be more confident in the state of the Big 12 just by, you know, speaking outwardly uh, confident like that. It's interesting because when he went, made his visit to Oklahoma State, um, you know, you had uh, the coach at Oklahoma State that, you know, made some comments about it. And Mike Gundy said that he left his conversation with your mark uh, impressed with how much he knew about the Pac-12 schools. And either the ADs in the Pac-12 are lying to me when they tell me they are unified they are together. They are galvanized. Uh, Utah, Arizona, Arizona State aren't going anywhere. As long as Oregon and Washington stay in this conference, uh, they feel like those universities are solid. I think if Oregon or Washington left, like, you know, tomorrow, yeah, it might be run for the Hills time for some of those Four Corners universities, but I don't think they're at that point or anywhere near that point right now. And so I'm kind of looking at your mark going, you know, is this a substance guy or does he have nothing of substance to talk about so he, his tact is completely about chumming the waters? I don't know. we got a great radio show for you today, great guests. Wilner's coming up, bottom of the hour here. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach in hour number three. I mentioned uh, earlier we got Jeff Tedford on tomorrow's show. Tedford's only doing one interview. 
in the state of Oregon in the run-up to the Oregon State game. He said he's coming on this show, and I appreciate that. Love that he's coming on this show. So you'll hear Jeff Tedford, the Fresno State coach, former Oregon assistant. He will be on tomorrow's program with us to talk about their game with Oregon State. But up next, we're going to talk about the Ducks more specifically. Oregon and Oregon State heading to Week 2, both with a chance to go 2-0. and One win by the Ducks, one win by the Beavers. Which one of these programs has more to prove in Week 2? I'll talk about that coming up. you got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. College football is a week-to-week demonstration of what you're about. You hear teams and coaches all the time. What do they say? Hey, we need to be 1-0 this week, right? Hey, we need to be 1-0. This just one game this week. Uh, Oregon and Oregon State will both suit up on Saturday. Oregon will be at home against Eastern Washington. Oregon State will be on the road at Fresno State in the nightcap. Which one of those programs has more to prove this week? It's an interesting question. It's very nuanced. 503-417-7575. Because on one hand, Oregon's coming off a demoralizing beatdown at the hands of Georgia. We all saw it. Oregon did almost nothing productive in that game, at least by television viewer standards or if you were in the stadium. Coaches could probably break down film and go, hey, in the second quarter, on the fifth play, our right guard made a hell of a block. Like, you can play that game all day if you want, but in the end, when you see 49-3, to you see a game that was not in any form or fashion uh, typical of a program that is moving in the right direction, right? Everybody worried about Oregon. Meanwhile, Oregon State... Played pretty well against a Boise State team, though, that didn't look like old Boise State. Which one of these teams has more to prove this week? I want your phone calls. 503-417-7575. Who has more to prove? Steven, you're going to lead us off. Which program has more to prove this week? For me, it's Oregon State. And the reason is, is we saw some different offensive things out of them last week. We saw Chance Nolan throw the ball down the field. We talked about this all offseason season. For Oregon State to take that next step, they're going to have to develop a receiver who can go down the field. They're going to have to have Chance Nolan complete some of those passes. Uh, according to uh, Pro Football Focus College, the most big-time throws among Power 5 quarterbacks in Week 1, Chance Nolan was tied for first with four of them. So he was throwing the ball down the field made a lot of big-time throws as they would categorize it. If they can do it again against Fresno State, you know what? Maybe we need to start taking Oregon State seriously in the Pac-12 North. I know that I... You know, I, yesterday I said I'm buying Oregon stock, which I am. I think Oregon's still better than Oregon State. But if they've changed it up and they're letting Chance Nolan throw the ball and he's successfully throwing the ball down the field, it could be a completely different offense for the Beavs. So I think if they can go in into Fresno, like you've talked about, tough place to play, get that win. It's been teetering between a pick and plus one either way. I think I think it's going to prove a lot to Oregon State that they actually need to be considered you know, a, a quote-unquote threat in the Pac-12. I think you can make the case for Oregon State. There's something in the back of my mind that says, I want to see some punch back from Oregon. And I know it's Eastern Washington. It's a big sky opponent. But Eastern Washington's got a quarterback that can play. Uh, I don't want to see that guy get loose. Oregon's defense in that respect has something to prove this week. Sean, who has more to prove, Ducks or Beavers, next week? 
I definitely think it's Oregon, just based on how inept they were week one. You know, you lose 49-3 to against anybody. Um, it's definitely a, a big concern. And Oregon, you know, they were just lifeless in that game. And um, I think, you know, everyone's brains resorted to, uh, you know, questioning the, co- the new coaching staff a little bit. I think there's there's some doubt. So, um, you know, and you, you may say, oh, it's just Eastern Washington. Well, for one, Eastern Washington's a solid FCS team. Oregon should definitely take care of business against them, but they are a solid team. And also, you know, it's always a sign that you're not going to have a very good season if, you know, a team like Eastern Washington hangs around or at least, you know, has some offensive life um, in Autzen Stadium. So you want to just kick the tires off Eastern Washington this weekend. If they aren't able to do that, if you continue to see some poor tackling, uh, continue to see Bo Nix make some mistakes, then I think it's a, it's a really bad sign going into BYU. Yeah, I think you can make the case for both, but I want listeners to tell us, which program do you think has more to prove this week? 417-7575 in the 503 area code. Um, I, I, I could take both sides on this one, but... I'm going to lean into the idea that Oregon State's got the tougher game. I think Fresno State on the road, Jeff Tedford playing in uh, a tough stadium that has been a hostile environment over the years, uh, really invites uh, an opportunity for Jonathan Smith to show us what his team's about. Again, Oregon State did not play well on the road last year. They were 6-0 and at home. They were 1-6 and in road games or neutral site games. So I think they have an opportunity to prove that they can go on the road. Jonathan Smith is going to tell us, I think, coming up at 5 o'clock, uh, he's going to tell us that you know they've talked a lot about this. They have to have talked about it when it comes to scheduling games, playing well on the road, showing up. They played terrific at home last year. They beat Utah at home, played an outstanding game against Utah, knocked off the eventual conference champion at Reeser Stadium, but then they went on the road to Cal, they went on the road to Colorado, and not so good. So what is it when you get away from Reeser Stadium? So in that respect, I think it's Oregon State that has more to prove, although I'll be rubbernecking watching the Oregon game against Eastern Washington, and what I'm looking for there is the defensive effort and the energy, and I want to see Noah Sewell and Justin Flo running around the field, you know, knocking people down, and I want to I want to believe that Oregon can beat and play with Utah, I mean, and BYU and other programs like that that are going to be on the schedule. So I I got to see something against Eastern Washington. If we can just talk for a minute about Oregon, guys. Sean said what he wants to see. Stephen, if I if I force you to make the case for Oregon, what are you looking for? I want some type of quarterback play that I can rely on going into that BYU game. You know Kalani Sataki is going to have that defense fired up for BYU in that one. Oregon has to be able to score some points. I you know, I agree with you, John. I want to see the defense fly around, but I have a lot of confidence that they're going to be fine going forward. I've had questions about this offense all offseason, and obviously after one game, none of them were answered. I've, I'm not the biggest Bo Nix fan. Is he the guy? Is Ty Thompson the guy? What is the answer at quarterback? Can we get some type of plays down the field? And if you can't do it against Eastern Washington, there's no way you're going to do it against BYU. So for me, I need to see some points and some offensive consistency, especially in the passing game, because I know I you know, I have a feeling that the defense is going to be fine all season, but, man, that offense was atrocious in week one. Yeah, and, and look, if, if we don't see Ty Thompson or Jay Butterfield in this game, I'll be concerned because I feel like this is a great opportunity for Dan Lanning to get Thompson or Butterfield a series some reps, maybe even a quarter or a half 
if Oregon can make a statement in the first half against Eastern Washington, it's a good opportunity if you're going to start Bo Nix and that's going to be the guy you ride or die with, that's the hill you're climbing up on if you're Dan Lanning, then I think you play Bo Nix and you hope that you blow out Eastern Washington and you can get Ty Thompson or Jay Butterfield into the game in the second half and get them comfortable because we all know at the quarterback position, you got to have a quarterback, and sometimes you got to have two. And right now, I don't think Oregon has any quarterbacks based upon the week one performance of Bo Nix. Like, I, I'm still waiting to see if he's won that job, even though Dan Lanning stayed with him in week one against, uh, you know, a really good Georgia team. I, I want to see him go out, play well, get some confidence, and let's see Ty Thompson or Jay Butterfield get into the game. Conversely, Sean, you took the Oregon uh, standpoint. If I force you to take Oregon State's standpoint, what are you talking about? What do they have to prove to you? Yeah, it's everything you guys have said. You know, like Oregon State hasn't been a team that can go on the road and win a big game, you know, a national television game. And, uh, you know, they proved they proved a lot in week one. You know, I haven't seen Oregon State really dominate uh, a respectable program like Boise State on national TV in a, you know, high-pressure game the way that they did in week one. But now it's about going into, you know, really a – a, a tough game for them. I mean, you mentioned it, the weather and, you know, the crazy fans at Fresno State. And, you know, Fresno State is a great head coach-quarterback combo and Je- Jeff Tedford and Jake Hayner. Like, that would be a very impressive win for Oregon State. So it's it's really just winning the game. But then also, you know, if we're talking X's and O's, it's it's the deep ball. You know, so Chance Dolan showed a lot of improvement in Week 1. He was slinging the ball around, something they didn't do a lot uh, last season. Um, if they can continue to show that in week two, then I think that's a great sign for the rest of the season. Yeah, if the Beavers can win, I think they'll be 3-0, and right? And then they will host USC and then go to Utah in consecutive weeks. Uh, you know, researcher uh, Cadillac Chris Brown pointing out that that is the runway. Here's a question. Which is the wider gap? The gap between Oregon and Georgia or the gap that we're going to see between Oregon and Eastern Washington? Right. Yeah. I that's a uh that's a good question. I don't know a ton about Eastern Washington, but like for me going into this game, it's it's really the defensive effort for Oregon that I want to see. I want I want Oregon to look like what Georgia looked like against them, where you're just flying around and, you know, just high energy, making plays all over the place, forcing turnovers. Like I want that you know, I was looking back, you know, during this conversation, the 2016 season, the awful defensive year for Oregon football and the year they went four and eight. Uh, you know, why a game like this is important is those first two games, you know, it was UC, it was UC Davis and Virginia both at home. They allowed 28 points and 26 points. So it's like, sure, they still dominated those games, but it was a sign you give up that many points to those teams that were not good at the time. And so I want Oregon to be able to give up like less than two touchdowns in this game. Yeah, I would love to see Oregon's defense. I would love to see Oregon State with a win. If Oregon State gets a win, I think uh, they'll get some votes. I think they will be in the top 25 being 2-0 with a good road win against a Mountain West Conference team that I think is going to have a nice season under Jeff Tedford. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see kind of what we're talking about in a week because there was so much reaction and overreaction to week one of the Pac-12 schedule and the college football schedule in general. John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group is coming up. We're going to talk about the upcoming games of the weekend and the comments by Brett Yormark, the Pac, uh, excuse me, the Big 12 Conference Commissioner. 
Wilner is next. Later in the program, hour number three, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. My kids are home from school. I said, uh, how was your day? What do you think they said, Stephen? Fine. Yeah. Good. Fine. Looking at their iPads. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't ask that question. John Wilner, Bay Area News Group superstar, joining us. He is the co-host of the all-new podcast, Kanzano and Wilner. Uh, you can grab it wherever you get a podcast. Wilner, what do your kids say when you ask them how school was? Uh, I'm not sure because they mumble. <laughs> I love it. I shouldn't it's ask. Hard. I mean, it's hard to get anything out of them other than, uh, you know, get off your screen. No, that's about it. <laughs> we also have a uh, we have a little rule in our household. We don't let them get on the screens before school, like in the morning. That's a big no. But they can ha- they can get on when they get home. And so, you know, it, Meanwhile, I'm at the breakfast table uh, on Twitter, so I don't know how hypocritical that is. Uh, Wilner, let me yeah, ask you. That's a big issue. That <laughs> is a big issue, true. They watch, they see me, and they're like, well, I, why, if you can do it, why can't I? So, yeah, because tell them, you're paying the mortgage. Um, let yeah, me ask. Well, that's a good one. Let me ask you a question. Uh, Brett Yormark, the Big 12 Conference Commissioner, he comes out today, throws one grenade, says, you know, He's looking west into the fourth time zone, which is interesting. Uh, he also said that uh, he is uh, kind of dancing around the semantics of that early negotiating window with ESPN and Fox, and he says that they're planning to talk about early negotiations. What is he doing by, by being so public with all this stuff? Well, I mean, he certainly is trying to show his membership, which is, the you know, behind, uh, on the contractual timetable, they are behind the Pac-12 by a full year, behind the Big Ten by two years. So what I think he's doing is trying to show his membership that he's he's being aggressive and he's out there and he's he's trying to do everything possible to kind of make up that distance, uh, in the strategic distance that separates the Big 12 from the Pac-12 in terms of the contract negotiations. Uh, is he trying to destabilize the Pac-12? I mean, you could you could argue that he is when he says those things. You could also say, well, he's talking about San Diego State, he's talking about Fresno State, or Boise. You know, uh, I know everybody immediately points to the four corners school when he talks about getting in the fourth time zone. But you know, Arizona and Arizona State are not in the Pacific time zone for the crucial month of the football season, and Utah and Colorado were never in it uh, with the big. 12 like those four schools, absolutely. But I think there's also, they look at it like there's other options to expand west if the Pac-12 stays together. Yeah, I think it's just weird to me that he's talking about it so much. Meanwhile, you know, I mean, George Klyovkov did talk about it on Media Day, but he's pretty much gone underground. I don't get yeah, the... Yeah, two very different approaches. Very yeah. Different approaches. Your mark says the things out loud that commissioners only say in private. He's, he's the total opposite, whereas you could argue the Pac-12 should have been more uh, a little bit more proactive with its public messaging in the last, 
you know, uh, what, two and a half months, but they took the tack they did, and your mark is very different in his, his approach. John Wilner with us, Bay Area News Group. I want to turn the focus a little bit to the weekend. Oregon trying to bounce back. Eastern Washington is the opponent. I asked a question to our listeners earlier. I said, the bigger gap, is it between Oregon and Georgia or Oregon and Eastern Washington? How would you answer that? Huh. Uh, that's a great question. It's certainly, uh, <laughs> I don't think Oregon's going to win 49-3. Does that, how's that, does that answer it? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Have, have they said any, is Bo Nix, is Bo Nix for sure the starting quarterback Saturday? I, we're all assuming so, because, right, I mean, if he was going to make a change, does he, I don't know. I mean, like, maybe he does make it uh, for the opening, you know, series of the game, or maybe he lets Bo come in and get a couple quarters, and then he lets somebody else get a chance to play, or maybe, maybe the reason we haven't seen any of these other guys is that maybe they're not any good. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that could be very well be the case. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, if, if Thompson or, or Butterfield, you know, get a series or two in the first half, maybe when the game is competitive. Uh, you know, why not see what those guys can do, right? Uh, at the same time, if we don't see them, you may, be, you may have a great point. Maybe they're not ready, and that would be a pretty telling statement uh, unto itself. I'm going to look at the schedule outside of Oregon, Eastern Washington, uh, but let's start with that game. Uh, what do the Ducks, in your mind, have to prove in that game? I mean, I just think they need to show the, uh, a level of competency that you would expect against a, a big sky opponent. Eastern Washington's usually, you know, pretty competitive uh, with Pac-12 schools. So, you know, Oregon should be ahead at halftime by a couple of scores and shouldn't really be under any kind of pressure in the third and fourth quarter. And I think if they, if they are, that'll be pretty telling. I mean, there's no way they're not going to have any kind of, you know, uh, emotional breakdown or, uh, you know, uh, any kind of uh, mental issues after that beating. That was a, that was one that was so bad. It, it rocks your confidence a little. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how they respond. I think it's a good test. It's a, certainly a better test than, than I would have expected because I didn't expect they were going to lose 49-3. Wilner, the Beavers are going to Fresno State. Jeff Tedford and Fresno State expected to be pretty good. They got a quarterback. You got Tedford. You got a hostile environment. Uh, Oregon State at uh, Fresno State. Uh, in your mind, how important is that game for Jonathan Smith and Oregon State, and how important is it for the conference? Well, certainly any game against the Mountain West these days is it has taken on added significance because the Pac-12 did so poorly last year, right? So every one of these games, whether it's San Diego State or Fresno State, uh, Boise State, is, is more of a, 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 a weapon of judgment in some ways for the, for the Pac-12 and, and often a no-win situation. It's like, well, sure, you should beat the Mountain West teams, and if you don't, then it's a big story. So I think it is important uh, for Oregon State. Like, if they can win this game, then you've got to think they're coming out of non-conference uh, 3-0. I don't remember who they have next week. But if you're 3-0 coming out of non-conference, you are in great position to get back into the postseason. So to me, this is a game, a lot of it is about the bowl math more than anything else. 
As you look around the rest of the games for the weekend, uh, you know, there are some big ones. Arizona in the nightcap is hosting Mike Leach in Mississippi State. It's a really interesting game. I mean, Arizona's much better than they were a year ago. At least they look that way. But this is an SEC Pac-12 matchup where the Pac-12 is not traditionally fared well, Wilner. Uh, what do you see happening in that Arizona-Mississippi State game? You know, I like the Wildcats. Uh, certainly, I like them to cover. That's a big, big spread. It's like 11 points. But, look, this is a rare, you know, Pac-12 matchups uh, against the other Power Five conferences, you know, have not uh, – Pac-12's been set up to fail in a lot of cases, right? Utah's on the road. Oregon's in Atlanta. It's a defending champ. Arizona State's at Oklahoma State. Um, Washington State at Wisconsin, right? Pac-12, a lot of road games against ranked opponents in Power 5 matchups. Well, here's a case where the Pac-12's at home, and it's not an SEC power, right? I mean, Mississippi's... A good team, but it's not like they're Bama or A&M or Georgia. So I think this is a game Pac-12 needs to win, right? Even if Arizona's not one of the best teams in the league, you got Mississippi coming all the way over here. Pac-12 needs to win this kind of game if it's going to start to kind of rebuild its reputation. Does that do enough? Does a win, an Arizona win over Mississippi State, help with the narrative, or is the damage done with Utah? and Oregon losing? I think some of the damage is done. I do think that there's enough time for the Pac-12 to crawl back a little bit on the on the optics. You know, to me, the big one uh, is Washington-Michigan State week three, right? Because Washington is clearly better than they were. Michigan State's a top-level Big Ten team, and you got them in Seattle. That, to me, will be a big one for the conference's reputation. Uh, at Notre Dame, that's a tough assignment, right, for the Bears. Uh, just like ASU, Oklahoma State, and Stillwater is a tough assignment. So, so I'm looking at, at next week, to be honest with you. I think that is a gigantic game if the Pac-12 is going to you know, reclaim a little bit of respect. I want to pepper through some of these other games and just give you a chance to kind of give uh, a bullet point. But what are you looking for in the UCLA home game against uh, Alabama State. Uh, what do you, what do you, what's the one thing you would want to know about that game by, by Saturday night? Uh, what the Alabama State marching band played. <laughs> I want to know how many people are going to show up. Well, that too. What's the, uh, the bar is at 27,000. They may get a few more uh, because it's not a holiday weekend, although I haven't checked what the temperature is supposed to be in L.A. this weekend. But, look, the Alabama State's band is awesome. So, that to me, that's what you tune in for. Amen to that. Arizona State, Oklahoma State, that game's on ESPN in Stillwater, Oklahoma. It feels like a tough matchup, but Arizona State every once in a while surprises people. Yeah, no, that's – Oklahoma State's good, and that's going to be real interesting, huh? There's a chance ASU could get run off the field uh, if they if, if it's ASU of last year and there's like you know ten false start penalties and three turnovers they're going to get run off the field so we'll see what kind of discipline they've got this year whether that's better at all. Wilner uh, USC going to Stanford. What are you looking for there? Well, I think it's going to give us a lot better indication as to you know the 
reality for, for both schools, right? FC looked great against Rice, and Stanford looked great against Colgate, and I'm not sure either is as good as it looked uh, last weekend. Uh, you know, Stanford always plays SC well in these early season games. So uh, the, the coaching advantage that David Shaw has had over the last however many years no longer exists. But, you know, I do want to see SC get pushed a little bit and see how see how all their new guys respond and whether they've got more, you know, more heart than they've shown in the last five, ten years. It, do, you, do you give Stanford a shot in that game? Do they have a puncher's oh, chance? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, they got a really good quarterback. I think Stanford is going to score on SC. It's just going to be a matter of, you know, are they defensively, will Stanford hold up enough, get enough stops in the second half to take it down to the wire? I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's a one-possession game with five minutes left. Yeah, I, I keep looking at that going, here's the chance for David Shaw to get all those Stanford fans who are all over him off his back. I mean, this is that would truly be David Shaw is back, Stanford's an eight-plus win team. I mean, the hype would be uh, incredible coming out of that game. And I... And I don't know about you, but I, you know, I looked at USC and I had a hard time kind of figuring out. Like they look like their offense looks good, looks like they'll score some points, but I, I still don't know who they are under Lincoln Riley. It might take us, you know, into into October before we have a real good feel. To me, a lot of it's about their defense. They had three pick sixes against Rice, but you know that's not going to happen against Tanner McKee. He's arguably the best pro prospect at quarterback position in the Pac-12. So how is SC's defense going to do you know, at the line of scrimmage? Is it going to get pressure? Are they going to make plays in the secondary? That is the big unknown. If their defense is, is even decent, then, then they're going to be real good. But you know they can score. Wilner, I'm going to cut you loose. I appreciate you. we got a new podcast episode coming out tomorrow. Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get a podcast. Kanzano and Wilner, find it there. Thank you, John Wilner. Thanks, my friend. There he is, Bay Area News Group superstar. Anything jump out to you, Stephen? You're the better here. Stanford, USC, you got a, got a feel on that game right now? I mean, I'm still feeling Stanford a little bit. I think Wilner's right on that. Stanford definitely has a chance. And like you said, USC with the three pick sixes, I know that's great, but that's not going to happen again. And knowing Stanford and watching them for so many years, you know Davis Shaw is going to just try to pound the rock at them and be physical, right? Because that's the whole question about USC. Are they physical enough on the front line? They weren't in a season ago. Can Stanford do that and kind of slow the game down a little bit, make a couple stops and stay within the number? I think number one up to nine today. Yeah, I'm like it. I'm gonna wait a little longer. Hopefully, it gets to ten, which is be a great, a great bet for me. Um, but yeah, I like Stanford that game. The other thing that jumped out to me, John, was when he was talking about Arizona State, Oklahoma State, and Oklahoma State. I mean, that is a tough place to play down in uh, Stillwater. If Arizona State is undisciplined like they usually are, that game could get really out of hand, just like John Wilner said. And that game is gonna show off. Does Herm have a good grasp of his team and have them disciplined and ready to go? Because Oklahoma State is going to come out jumping in that one. Spencer Sanders and all those guys, man, I, that seems like a blowout waiting to happen. Yeah, I think uh, that one could get ugly. I, I am really interested in Arizona and Jaden Delora against Mike Leach and Mississippi State. That game should be – at Arizona-Mississippi State game could be a lot of fun. I disagree with Wilner a little bit. I don't think – 
Arizona winning that game, I don't think erases the narrative for me week one. I don't think it makes anybody think anything differently because I think they're going to view Mike Leach and Mississippi State as a different kind of SEC program. And we've seen Mike Leach lose some – he's got some bad losses. Like, you know, he was at Washington State. He lost to Portland State. You know, we, every once in a while – a Mike Leach coach team lays an egg and just doesn't play well and offensively doesn't have it together. And, you know, I think the narrative on that one, I think it's going to take a lot more work from the Pac-12 to erase what happened in week one. Yeah, I think with Arizona, if they pull off that win, what it's going to do is going to make it so every Pac-12 team doesn't just count that as a win. Right before the season, you're counting out wins. Your team plays Arizona. That's yeah. a win right there. If they beat Mississippi State after beating San Diego State on the road, you can't count that up as a win, a guaranteed win anymore. Yeah, amen to that. All right, our uh, big splash coming up. Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State coach, later in the program. You got the BFT. Leave it here. What's the big splash? Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Jeff Tedford, the Fresno State coach, former Oregon assistant, on tomorrow's show. That should be a good one. Every day on the program, we give you the big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Doug Gottlieb tweeted in late June that Freddie Freeman's agent, Casey Close, never told Freddie Freeman about the Braves' final offer. Close and Excel Sports Management sued Gottlieb in mid-July in a U.S. District Court in Manhattan, alleging defamation by libel. Gottlieb tweeted an apology today. He said, quote, upon further vetting of my sources, a review of the lawsuit filed against me in this matter, and a direct conversation with Casey himself, I have learned that the conduct I alleged did not occur, and there is no credible basis for stating that it did. He wrote, my ultimate investigation in this matter confirms that Casey Close did, in fact, communicate all offers to Freddie Freeman, and the sources I relied upon were incorrect in no uncertain terms. Gottlieb58 uh, um, uh, said at the beginning that Freeman had fired Close. However, Freeman's listed agency remains Excel, according to the Players Association. Uh, Gottlieb uh, appears on Fox Sports, on the Pac-12 Network, on CBS Sports. Um, in the suit, uh, Close says that the Braves offered Freeman $110 million over five years then made a $125 million five-year proposal, then upped it to $135 million. All of it was rejected by Freeman. Uh, it appears as though Freddie Freeman, who signed for $162 million in six years with the Dodgers, knew what he was getting into when he, when he uh, signed the document on the dotted line. I think you've got to be really careful. Like, First of all, like, it's a great example of why you can't just throw crap out there. There's a lot of people on social media... There are some people in mainstream media who rely upon sources that are credible. But there are also some others who I don't know why just sort of get into the frenzy. Maybe it's the attention. 
I don't know what it is, but get into the practice of just throwing crap out there that is shaky information. And I've told people this, and I'm going to say it again. Like, you're never going to hear me on this show repeat something or say something that I can't vet or I don't believe is credible and pass it off as breaking news. I'm never going to do that to you. I'm never, like, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I'm never going to take information from a source that I'm just not sure about. And that happens all the time. All the time, I get tips and I get information. And I go, ah, spider senses tell me that that may not be all that it seems. And what I do with that information is instead of just regurgitating it or quickly tweeting it, I will turn around. I think the responsible thing to do that most journalists will do is you turn around and you run that by somebody who is in a position to tell you, yes, it's true, no, it's not true. In a lot of cases, like what Doug Gottlieb should have done is he should have gone to Excel. Should have gone right to the agent and said, hey, I have a source telling me that you didn't tell Freddie Freeman that the, that the Braves had made this offer. And that gives Excel the opportunity to go, well, yes, we did. And Gottlieb could have then reported, look, I heard this. I asked Excel. This is what they said. See, that's a fair way to report that. The unfair way to report it is just to throw it out there and tweet it, which is what Gottlieb did. Every, you know, everybody makes mistakes, but the stakes in this game are too high to take chances. Just way too high. You know, and I tell people who read me at johnconzano.com, like, one of the reasons you come to this radio show or one of the reasons maybe that you read me at johnconzano.com is that you're going to get sourced, in-depth, breaking news, quality, deep-dive information that you know to be accurate. You're not, it's not guesswork. It's not, you know... I'm not sitting around in the basement. I'm, uh, you know, I know where to go with the information, and it's going to be sourced, and it's going to be, it's going to be fact-checked. And so, uh, you know, it's really a sad story because I remember when it broke, I thought, oh my gosh, they didn't talk to Freddie Freeman, they didn't tell him there's an offer. Like, it's literally the biggest sin that an agent could commit. And I don't blame Excel and Casey Close for, for filing a lawsuit, uh, defamation and libel against Gottlieb. And apparently, the result is that Gottlieb has apologized. Coming up, Punch It Audio, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State's coach, coming up in hour number three. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. I'm curious, like, Stephen and Sean, you get in the position as an update anchor that at the top and bottom of the hour you're doing news updates. If somebody had tipped you off and given you some info on, you know, Damian Lillard and, you know, Jody Allen, you know, they never talked. You know, that was a New York Post report that came out. Reporter in the New York Post said, hey, you know, they, they never talked, doesn't return the call, whatever. Or in the case of Freddie Freeman, the agent, somebody whispers to you, hey, the agent never told Freddie Freeman. Do you go right on air with that, or what do you do with that? Uh, no, I think I would first probably go to you and say, hey, what do you think about this? Have you heard anything uh, before I report anything? 
I just feel like you got to run that past, you know, I think one of the most valuable things that you can do in, you know, is network in any job. But as a media member, you really should network with people who are sourced. The thing that I've learned about in this business is you have to be credible and people take your opinions seriously, right? Your opinions or your reporting very seriously. So you have to know what you're talking about. You have to be prepared. And it doesn't sound like Gottlieb was prepared to this situation. He just ran with it rather than, like you said, keep asking other people. So prepared, be prepared is just the most important thing to do, I think, in this type of world. And he just didn't do it. I don't know why he wouldn't do that because I feel like he's a guy who's been at it a long time and should have known better. But in the end, I, I'm telling you, like, especially with realignment and expansion, I have seen some wild things thrown out there with people are just throwing stuff against the wall. And I know the sourcing isn't right because I'm literally going to the horse's mouth on some of this stuff. You know, I I can get to the commissioners of, two or three conferences pretty quickly, four conferences pretty quickly. I can get to coaches in those conferences and ADs in those conferences pretty quickly. Um, if I need to check something out, I'm not just going to turn around and tweet it. I'm going to go and I'm going to run it up the flagpole. I had I had Tark said, I had this conversation with Jerry Tarkanian one time, long time ago. Tark told me, he said, hey, yeah, how much basketball have you played? And it's true. Like I was covering him in a basketball context, and I hadn't played a lot of basketball. Like I played, you know, a little bit of high school basketball. Like that, my experience, you know, as an athlete myself was not in basketball. I played baseball. My dad played professional baseball. I played baseball in college. I played football in high school. I played football at the JC level, community college level. You know, I, I kind of, you know, I can, I can read a basic defense. Like I know if they're in cover two, cover three, cover five. I can see that stuff. Uh, but I'm not an expert on that stuff. And Tark was asking me, and he was just curious. He wasn't trying to be crappy. He just said. How do you know when you're watching a game what you're watching? And I said, that's a great question. And I said, part of it is I'm talking to your assistant coaches. And I'm asking them, hey, when you came out of that timeout, tell me what you were trying to do. Explain it to me like I'm an idiot. Give me basketball for dummies. And I think you have to extend that. You know, even when it comes to media rights, I, I, I didn't know anything about television markets and media rights a couple of years ago. Now, now I know how many households there are in Idaho. Like, why do I know that? Because I've gone to the people who know who are the experts, and I say to them, hey, help me with this. Help me understand it, and then I'll even run it by them before I print it. I have on multiple occasions. Bob Thompson, the former Fox Sports Network's president, I, I have on multiple occasions said to him, hey, I'm about to publish this piece, and I have this paragraph in there about TV households and how they matter. Can you read it for me? And the experts in those industries are always happy to help you out because they feel like they're providing, I think, a public service to people. So I'm telling people, like, when you read me at johnconzano.com, you're getting sourced, in-depth, as accurate as I can possibly get information. I'm not always going to be right. Like, I might pick Oregon to play Georgia within 17 and a half. Yeah, I did that. But I'm, I'm not going to pass along to you information that is shaky. I'm not going to do it on this radio show either. It's I part mean, of the game. No, that's that's the thing is I think people are afraid to ask questions and act like they don't know. But I've learned, you know, I've learned this whether it's in school or sports or working, like to be the best at what I can do, and I always strive to be the best I can be. I got to ask questions. I got to get help. No one did it by themselves, right? You got to get help from other people. So, you know, with your point with Tark of you're asking the assistant coach what to look for, I do the same thing. You know, I can ask 
different people what to look for for different sports, and it, I think it works out because it just makes you smarter. Like, you want to strive to just get as much information as possible, and then it's up to you what to do with that information. Yeah, I, I, I remember, you know, thinking about speaking on Tark, you know, I remember watching his team play basketball, and it came a year after, Steve, and I had covered Bob Knight as a beat reporter. So I'm covering Indiana, covering the Big Ten, I'm covering Knight. And I, the ne- very next year, less than a year, just months later, I'm covering Jerry Tarkanian in Fresno State. Totally different systems, totally different philosophies. It didn't look anything alike. The practices didn't look anything alike. And I can remember asking, you know, what the Tark's assistant coach is like, what are you trying to do here? Because I could tell in watching Bob Knight's teams what they were trying to do because they were very methodical. They were very disciplined. You could see it. Like, you could hear Knight talk about it in the timeout, and then they'd come out of the timeout, they're running the play. With Tark's teams, sometimes, you know, it was rebound, and then they'd break the huddle, and they weren't ta- they weren't drawing up a play. And he knew better, because he knew that he, his guys, he just wanted them to go out and space the floor and run the offense. No, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, there's so many different styles of basketball, and you do learn this watching different coaches a lot of times, and this happens in football, too, like, they just kind of roll the ball out and let their assistant coaches handle things. Or but especially for basketball, like they just roll the ball and let the guys be athletes. And sometimes it works when you have really good teams. Sometimes it doesn't. But you don't necessarily have to even have plays run up. You just have a basic structure, and all the guys know what that structure is. And then you can kind of freelance and play off of that, and it gives people confidence. So you know, Tark definitely felt comfortable with his team that he could just say, you know what, this is the basic structure we're doing play off of that and we're just kind of going to try to win the game that way and it works right and then Bobby Knight obviously with him wanting to control everything it worked as well so yeah I mean there's just totally different styles you can use for all different sports which guy could you play for or would you rather have played for oh Tark Tark for sure um I mean I'm okay being yelled at by people it doesn't bother me but um you know Bobby Knight getting in people's faces and yelling like I don't react great to that uh, so I know Tark did as well, but I think playing under Tark would be a lot more fun than Bobby Knight. I, Knight? I, I yeah, couldn't right. handle Bob Knight at all. That's just my personality. I, you know, call me soft, whatever. I, I couldn't handle <laughs> just being screamed at like that. He wasn't always that way, though. I think sometimes we see the clip because that's what ESPN throws out there. They throw out him throwing the chair or him yelling at somebody and, you know, the veins popping out in the or side of his neck. Choked a guy. Yeah, or, you know, I had heard... I don't know if I don't know if if you know I should have done this, but I had heard a lot about Knight prior to going out and taking that job. I was there in 1998, 1999. He had uh, a team with AJ Guyton and Luke Record that was pretty good, not great, but pretty good. They were going to be you know a top four team in the conference. Um, but you had Mateen Cleaves in Michigan State and Tom Izzo. They had it cooking, and Ohio State had Scooney Penn and Michael Red. They had it going. And so that conference was really good, and Purdue was very solid too. But I remember, you know, night in the news conferences after games, he was alternately just amazing where, like, you know, you would ask him, hey, what were you trying to do in overtime? You know, you got a three-point basket, you won the game, but did you get the look you were looking for? And he would turn from – angry Bobby Knight into a teacher all of a sudden for a minute. And he would say, stand up. You stand over here. Give me three other writers. You guys stand here. Here's what we were trying to do. And he'd walk you through the play. And it was nothing like what you see on ESPN. It was like watching, you know, a, a, a professor on a campus 
who's an expert in what he did explain how it worked and who you know every job of every person and then there were other nights for whatever reason he was pissed off or something he would walk into the post game news conference i'll never forget this he walked in one night he would have a stat sheet in his hands and he would always say he would never do an opening statement he would always say anybody got a question that's how he'd say anybody got a question and I had my head down because I was looking at the stat sheet. He walked into the room. I hear him say, anybody got a question? I look up. He's walking out of the room. Like, he just walked in, said that, walked out. So he could intentionally be a jerk, unnecessarily so, and I think that's where he really lost the media that were on that beat. And and he did play favorites on the beat. He had Bob Hamill, who was the longtime beat reporter at the Bloomington newspaper, he let Hamill come into the practices. He let Hamill watch everything. He shut everybody else out. And Hamill protected Knight. I mean, he he wouldn't report any of the negative stuff, and that's why Knight gave him that preferential treatment. And the rest of the media uh, were left on the outside looking in. And so, like you know, they beat they beat Temple in overtime, uh, a great John Cheney team in overtime uh, at uh, at uh, in Bloomington one afternoon. It was like a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. They win in overtime. And uh, Knight comes in to do the news conference, and then he traditionally would bring in two players. He sent in two freshmen who never played in the game. So you're a media member covering the team. You can't get into the locker room. You get Knight, and then he sends two guys out to talk about the game who didn't even play in the game. And, and at the end of it, you're just like, Phew. so, you know, I did, what I started doing is I started waiting outside the locker room where the players were leaving and quoting them. And then they, you know, and then he said, you know, we don't want anybody doing that. So he, you know, he cut me off from that. So it's, you know, I, I left that experience going, gosh, he's intentionally difficult and unnecessarily difficult in certain situations. But I also left, you know, telling people, I never turned my microphone, my, my tape recorder off. Like you never turned it off because you never knew what he was going to say. And uh, he could alternately be uh, a jerk that would never give you anything. And then the next day he would be just fantastic talking about, you know, whatever. And so I don't think the public got to see that. Now, Tark was different. Tark, you know, and I wrote it today, Tark was like the pioneer of NIL. He was doing it before it was legal. But it was, Tark was interesting because he knew his guys had a short attention span. He was a, he was recruiting a different player. Indiana was getting uh, probably a kid that had good academics in high school, had, you know, been at the top of his class, was a good basketball player and a good athlete, but knew what he was signing on for when he was coming to play for Bob Knight. Tark's guys were second chance guys that had burned out somewhere or been to a community college or were, you know, had had a, a felony conviction and, you know, worked through it and, you know, and, and there was a place for both guys in college basketball, but I remember Tark when I first got the job. Here I am covering Tark's team. I had just covered Bob Knight. Andy Katz who was at ESPN at the time was the beat reporter for the Fresno Bee. He was covering the Tark team. And Adrian Wojnarowski, who's you know now at ESPN, was my predecessor as the columnist. So I'm in this role. Andy Katz introduces me to Tark. He says, "Hey, here's John. You know he was uh, covering Bob Knight last year. Tark's eyes got as big as saucers, and he says, "Come here and sit down. Practice is going on, mind you. The team is practicing. They're like not warming up. Like they're in drills." Tark takes me into the stands and sits with me, and he says, "Tell me everything about Bob Knight." He wanted to know everything. Like, and I said, all these drills you're doing, 
I said, he, he, this is not what he was doing at practice. Because <laughs> everything at Fresno State was scrimmaging. Everything was, you know, Terrence Roberson and Chris Heron and Rafer Alston dunking and, you know, fast break alley-oop. I mean, it was tremendously athletic and entertaining, but there was no structure to it. And I, I always felt like if you could get Tark and Knight together and create this amalgam of the two guys, you would have had unbeatable teams. Like, you would have had incredible athleticism and, and, and freelancing mixed with some discipline because Tark's teams – Late in the season, late in games, would often find ways to beat themselves. And Knights teams would sometimes get beat because they'd run into a more athletic uh, team that could play just as disciplined as them. As Michigan State was a great example of that, or Ohio State with Michael Red and Scooty Penn, a great example of that. But it was, I mean, it was a fantastic experience for me as a young journalist watching those guys operate and, and kind of realizing, look, there's more than one way to do this. Like, you know, you, there's a place for both guys in the ecosystem. But just one guy's on one end of the pendulum and the other guy's on the other end. Just fantastic to see that. All right, leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth statewide. We'll play some punch and audio coming up and much more. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's popped into the studio. Uh, Steven, you're going to be delighted with this segment. Awesome. Um, apparently, there is a uh, controversy going on in Hollywood over the alleged spitting. Uh, Harry Styles, Chris Pine, uh, I don't know, People Magazine had it. ...of off-camera feuds to onset romance to casting decisions. The conversation surrounding Olivia Wilde's upcoming film, Don't Worry Darling, has taken on a life of its own. And now, spit? As the cast of the film arrived at the Venice International Film Festival for its premiere on Monday, photos and video clips began to flood the internet, with both fans and critics dissecting every move. What began as a who is standing next to whom turned into a question of whether the movie star Harry Styles spat on his co-star Chris Pine ahead of the film screening. <laughs> In a clip that's been circulating the internet, Styles is seen taking a seat next to Pine, who notably is sitting to the left of Wilde. As the singer bends down to take a seat, his lips move before Pine quickly looks down and stops clapping, which some believe is acknowledging that the singer has just spit. Pine then shakes his head slightly and appears to giggle before reaching down and grabbing his sunglasses that are placed between his legs. As the clip circulated, the internet debated just exactly what occurred. One Twitter user posted a gif made from the clip with the message he 100% spit on Chris Pine. However, some internet users jumped to Styles' defense, giving other explanations as to what had happened. Hard hitting. Stuff here, guys. Did Harry Styles spit on Chris Pine? And why does this matter? Well, that was my thing. Is I first saw that, and I, you know, maybe I've been on the show for too long already. But I first thought of Anna, and I was like, I need Anna to investigate this. And I'm not sure I take that as a compliment. Our expert yeah. on spitting, or is it spatting? Yeah, spatting. I mean, it is fascinating. Um, there was definitely movement from the lips, and there's definitely movement towards the lap. But there could have been a second spitter. We don't know this. Um, on the grassy knoll? On the grassy knoll, second spitter. But, uh, Spitgate! I, yeah, I mean, I don't think he did. Uh, watching it numerous times, I've come to the conclusion that he just kind of forgot his glasses were there, saw the glasses, and thought it was funny where they were. I don't know, but I don't think spit was uh, happening. I would love to know what was going through his mind in that moment where he kind of pauses and he looks down. 
Anna, what do you think's happening there? You studied this frame by frame like it was the Zapruder film. Oh, I didn't just study this. I wasted like a good uh, 10 to 15 minutes investigating this, and then I'm just shameful now about that. But, I mean, I, I think it. Harry Styles, he's British, right? Right? Yeah, I'm going to say like so. He's from the I'm going to say yeah. Sure, yeah. Or he's from the UK. And so I think he was just kind of being cheeky. I don't think he actually spit, but I think he made a motion to look like he was spitting, like just to kind of poke fun at it. Um, but secondarily, fake spitter, fake spit. And then I, I <laughs> this is I, I, I'm not a toxicologist. I'm not, you know, an expert on uh, assessing whether people are on some kind of substance. Just anecdotally, Chris Pine looked a little out of this world during the event. So I don't know what was going on with him. There were theories that he was applauding, but then looking down to check where his sunglasses were, and that's why he was looking down. I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of talk about this on the Internet. Sean, you have a, a thought? Productive. Sean, was there spatting or spitting going on here? Um... You know, it's tough to see from the video. Uh, my thought, you know, going back to what you said earlier, I thought you made a good point. Uh, it was the second thing you said is, why does this matter? Um, I, li I like Harry Styles' music, and I wasn't even familiar that he was an actor. Um, but, yeah, no, you know, I, uh, I, I'm not sure I have a strong opinion on whether there was spit or not here. So, uh, to be clear, uh, now a representative for Chris Pine has said that Harry Styles did not spit on Chris Pine. Hmm. Goes on to say, there is nothing but respect between these two men, and any suggestion otherwise is a blatant attempt to create drama. Has anybody here ever been, have, have you been spat on? No. Um, I actually think spitting is, like, spitting on someone is one of the most disrespectful things you could do to somebody. And I always tell my wife this, like, when I played basketball, you can say whatever you want to me, but if you spit on me or you tell me to shut up, like those are the two things that set me off, and I will get in your face and start fighting. So, um, no, nobody has, and I dare somebody to do it to me. I was in high school. I had a, an opposing player in a football game attempt to spit at me. What went wrong? He, Because when you're in a football helmet, uh -huh. you have a face mask in front of you. He tried to spit at me, and the spit hit his mask and just was dripping down off the mask in front of him. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked at him like, what are you doing, you idiot? Awkward. You know, if he was a kicker, he might have got that out of there. But he didn't get it out of there. But... I've only ever been spat on when someone uh, is real emphatic as they're talking, and I'm just kind of, you know, Like me? Showered. I'm spitting, I'm we're eating dinner, and I'm, I'm spitting gonna, corn at you? I'm yeah, not going to name names. <laughs> I'm not naming names. But some people in this household get real excitable when they yeah. speak. All right. So let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. What is poor form when it comes to that? Let's say you are talking excitedly to somebody else at dinner. And let's just say it's not like somebody you know that well. Yeah, yeah. And you accidentally <laughs> launch a little corn kernel or a piece of lettuce and everyone sees it. Uh, do you address it no. or do you ignore it and move on? You ignore it. You no. ignore it. You so awkward. It. You address, you address it. it. Really? Yeah. You, you say, you know what? I am very sorry that this happened, but I was so excited I couldn't even control my excitement to be around you people. <laughs> and then do you, like, clean it up for them? 
Yeah, you give him a napkin or something. If you say, hey, you know what? Do you want me to clean that off for you? I will. Oh, my gosh. Or, like, when you're eating something and you sneeze in the oh. food. I did that to my roommate, Adam Sussman, uh, the other day. We were, yeah. He made me food, and then I was talking to him, and I sneezed. And, uh, yeah, the food got back on him. Wait a minute. You're roommates with Adam Sussman? That's correct. How did I not know that? That's correct. Are you, like, you're supposed to be tuned in to, like, everybody Sean is, no, I just... is like... <laughs> Cohabitating with here. Worlds are colliding. <laughs> What's he like as a roommate? Oh, he's an uh, he's an amazing cook. He's the kind of guy that you know is an amazing cook, not the best cleaner. So he does oh, the cooking. Oh, he's messy. Yeah, a little bit messy. He's a slob. A little bit messy. We're trying yeah. to work with him. Hey, turn the lights off. Remember to turn the lights off when you leave. Or like, he hey, remember you're... to clear the dishwasher. I I I do more of the cleaning. He does. He does a lot of good cooking and stuff. Yeah. He thinks he, that you're his mom, that you're supposed to clean up after him. <laughs> he, he's That's like the, the Swedish problem. chef from Sesame I, Street when he cooks. He just I, throws the flour around <laughs> in the I, kitchen. I was working in a restaurant one time, and I was a server. And I had a friend who was in a booth that had come into the restaurant. You know how you work somewhere and your friends would come in and they'll be like, oh, I'm going to come in and sit in your section. Yeah, that was I, always a blast. Yeah, okay. So I had a couple of my friends who sat in a booth. And then I was working in that section, obviously. And I had this table right behind where they were sitting. So these booths were back to back. Well, my friends came in and all they ordered was like a cup of coffee and a dessert. Okay. Okay. And the bill was like eight bucks or something. Yeah. So my friends... Uh, I told him I got it, okay? Because I was a high roller, right? I'm working at a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. So I said to my friends, I got it. It's on me. Yeah. So I'm going to pay for it, right? Yeah. Probably because I was getting an employee discount, too. Is this at a, I got to know. Is nah, this like a... I, I don't want to really say because it's embarrassing, the restaurant that I worked at. <laughs> what? I, 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 oh, did you see how restaurant? I, did you see how I skimmed I over? I know. I know. <laughs> He'd be proud of that. <laughs> Did you guys see how I kind of glossed over the name of the see, restaurant? What, that's what, what I You work at like Hooters? Like, no, no I can't think yeah. Of, like... I worked at Hooters. <laughs> I, like, can't I, think of I made amazing tips. <laughs> that's what I'm here for is your spouse to pick up on the fact that you're glossing okay. over that detail. It was Marie Callender's. There you go. See, what's so bad about it. that? I, uh, I, uh, Great yeah, pot pies. And I noticed that my friends ordered pie. They uh -huh. ordered coffee and pie. Okay, so I, I'm telling him, don't worry about it, it's on me. Okay, but my friends are insisting on paying. Okay. They're like, no, they're waving a $10 bill at me. Okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the next booth over, I had kind of a difficult customer service experience. Uh -huh. The guy who had his back to my friends uh -oh. was a little bit abrasive and difficult. We've yeah. all seen this person. I don't know if he had a bad day at work. Yeah. I don't know if this is just how he is all the time, but literally he was in a bad mood from the minute he sat down. I gave him menus. He didn't seem happy about where he was sitting. He didn't seem happy to be in the Marie calendars. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you're going to get pie at the end. Why don't you cheer up? <laughs> uh, and he was just difficult. He was uh -huh. abrasive. And I'll never forget, he ordered pot roast and mashed potatoes. Okay? <laughs> I remember this. Okay. So he, I had delivered his food. My friends are in the next booth, and I'm trying to quietly tell them, like, it's on me. Uh -huh. I don't want to make a big deal of it because I don't want everybody else in my section to be like, why are they getting free food? Right. But I was like, it's on me. I got this. I got this. My friends are like, no, no, no. Take the money. Take the money. We've all been in this circumstance, right? Uh -huh. And I'm going, no, no, no. I'm putting my hands away. There's no bill. My friend wads up the $10 bill. Oh, no. And he throws it at me. 
But instead of it going to me, <laughs> physics took over. And the $10 bill went over the head of the gentleman who had the pot roast and landed in his mashed potatoes. <laughs> he looked up at me like Bob Knight coming out of a bad timeout. <laughs> I said, sorry about that. And I took the pot roast right off the table and just walked straight to the kitchen. I ended up buying their dinner, too. Fishing that $10 bill out of the mashed potatoes. What you just described, I don't know if you guys are fans of Curb Your Enthusiasm, but oh, there yeah. is literally an episode where there's a waitress and she's sweating because there's like a heating issue in the restaurant <laughs> and she delivers the food to like Larry and his friends and there's sweat that goes into the soup and then they just walk out. But she's also <laughs> sick. That's the other thing. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing worse than like a server that has their hand inside the bowl. Use a tray. Have you, have you had that experience? I had, we had that experience one day, Anna. We were out. The, the lady was bringing me a bowl, and it was biscuits and gravy in a bowl. It was breakfast, and she had her hand, her thumb was on the inside of the bowl yeah. as she handed it to me. Uh-huh. And I was like, I don't know where your thumb's been. <laughs> like, same thing as Larry David. I wanted to walk out, but I didn't. I was hungry. <laughs> My life is curb your enthusiasm, yeah. guys. Just, just <laughs> Mine for the too. All right. So, it, so we, have dis- we have settled. I, I think we're saying if you accidentally spat on somebody yeah is that right is that the correct uh-huh grammar yeah Spitted. Uh, if you accidentally spat then you address it and move on Sean's except for though. sean Sean's except for sean yeah yeah sean's it saying depends on the yeah. the magnitude of the piece of food the size of the spit right if it's just mm-hmm. the littlest thing and then you ignore it but if it's very noticeable Okay. That and yeah, you both notice it. I think it's... Anna and I had this experience in Atlanta. We were eating somewhere, and I was eating corn. That's yeah. how I knew it. And I was talking excitedly, and yeah. a kernel of corn flew from my mouth and landed on her left forearm. <laughs> and she stopped eating and looked down. And, I, I, and, Sean, in that circumstance, you can't ignore it. You can't ignore it. I said, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that was like every meal in it. Like... Hey, hey. <laughs> Take it easy, lady. Well, but so the the thing on this film, though, going back to this yeah. film, this particular film, which is directed, I think, by Olivia Wilde, has already generated so much, like, ancillary publicity. Yeah, because um, Harry Styles and Olivia Wilde hooked up on it, right? Well, no. They oh. were actually together prior no. to that. Allegedly. But Shia LaBeouf, the actor, was originally cast in the role that Harry Styles wound up playing. Mm. So, like... Think about it. The movie's called Don't Worry, Darling. This Spitgate thing happened at the Venice Film Festival at one of the movie's showings. And so it, there was a whole thing about how Shia LaBeouf said, you know, Olivia Wilde said that he got that he was fired from the movie. And, you know, he's had sort of a, a run of bad I had, publicity. I right? had him on the show in person in you studio. Shia LaBeouf? Yeah, he was in person on the how show. How do I not know that? And, uh, I got some video of him. We did a. Uh, I Are did we a. talking about the same person? Yeah. Really? Yeah. He was the guy on... that was in Transformers. Yeah, he was on the show. He was on the show in, in studio. Studio? Yeah. He has huh. some connection to the state of Oregon. He was in Oregon for some reason. Huh. So he came in studio, and I had. I, I got to say, he has this reputation of being very difficult. Yeah. I thought he was a joy. Okay. In our eight or ten minutes of yeah. knowing each other. Yeah. He was an absolute delight. Okay. Thanks for that. <laughs> Well, so he's saying he he penned a whole thing and is firing back saying that he was not, in fact, fired, that he stepped away from the movie for a variety of reasons, primarily because he said that they couldn't, 
get together enough and rehearse in a way that he believed that the final product would be good. So that's all leading into this. And so mm. now there's this spit take thing going on. And I just, I feel like it's all concocted for us to talk about the movie. So we're just falling into their trap, people. I, I, I googled Shia LaBeouf or whatever his name is. And, you know, he, he was in Transformers with Megan Fox. Yeah. I have yeah. not had Megan Fox on the show. <laughs> You didn't even notice him in Transformers. I'm, yeah, I, can, can now I'm Googling Megan Fox. <laughs> <laughs> so, there you Sean, go. Can we go see Transformers tonight? <laughs> I'm married. It's okay. Okay, so... It's okay. So, what? are we saying there was no spit? That they, they won because they have us talking about their movie without spitting on each other? 100%. They win. Again, Punch It Audio is coming up. Anna's going to try to play. It should be a joy. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Yes, I know the NFL is starting. College football is in full swing, and we're talking about saliva. No more, no more. It was supposed to just be like two minutes of saliva talk, but here we are. Uh, Bills Rams tomorrow. Week one of the NFL action will start. Uh, that brings us, of course, to Punch It Audio. It's the best sound from all around. Anna, you're going to try to participate in this. You have something to offer. Just break in. Okay? We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, the Rams won the Super Bowl, then threw a parade. Sean McVay, this is where we last heard him at the end of last season. Aaron Donald, Sean McVay, they said, let's run it back. Aaron Sean McVay just tapped me on the shoulder. He wanted to know if you were interested in running it back. Run it back! 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 Give it up for Aaron Donald! What a stud! Everything! We, we, we built the super team. We can bring the super team back. Why not run it back? We could be world champions. There it is, week one of the NFL action, featuring the Rams, featuring the Bills, Rams at Bills, Thursday night football, that's how it starts. Rams are getting two and a half points, they are the favorites. Is this a possible late season that these are the two favorites? Is it possible? Can the Rams do it? Uh, the Bills are actually two-point favorites. Oh, the Bills are. That's what I said. Did I say the Rams are getting two and a half or laying two? You said Rams are favorites. Oh. Rams are getting two and a half. Just looking right at it. Rams are getting two and a half. Over/unders 52. This feels like the early season Super Bowl to me, but I'm skeptical that the Rams can do what some other teams have been unable to do, and that is get through a season injury-free, drama-free, and get back to the promised land. I'll remind people that the Rams almost lost in the NFC playoffs. The Niners probably should have had them. But credit where credit's due, they are the defending Super Bowl champions. Rams, Bills, who you got in the opener, Sean? 
you know, I just I don't really see why the the Bills are favored. I think I, I like the Rams for you know, given that they're two point underdogs. I like the Rams at home. Games in Buffalo, yeah. The games in Los Angeles. It says Rams at Bills. Why am I getting that wrong? I'm reading CBS Sports. I need to get off that. Steven, it's in Los Angeles, right? Oh uh, yeah, it's in Los Angeles. Yeah, Weird. I just I, I think the Rams win at home, and I don't see why they're underdogs. Bills are good though. I'll take the Bills. Early season. Who's playing for more this season? Or who's playing for more in the early part of the season? Is it possible that the Rams come into this game a little complacent, coming off the Super Bowl, or a little fat and happy, or no? Sean McVay's never lost an opener in his head coaching tenure. Uh, I think the Bills are playing for more. I mean, the Bills, just what they went through at the end of last season, they played flawlessly in the playoffs and still got eliminated in the second round. That's why they're the favorites. I think they're the hungriest team this year. So I guess yeah. that's a good point. You know, maybe maybe I should pick the Bills for tomorrow. I went to Caesars Sportsbook. They have Buffalo at Los Angeles. So if you are a Bills fan planning to be at the stadium tomorrow, don't go. The game's in L.A. Buffalo two-and-a-half point uh, favorite in this game. Steven, who do you like? Ooh, uh, I don't really like either side, to be honest with you, but uh, to make a pick, I will definitely be picking the Bills. The big, the game that I want to watch the, over the weekend is the Niners at Chicago, and I only want to watch because the Niners will look so bad in different preseason games. I want to see, do they flip the switch? Do they look like, you know, one of the top seven teams in football? Because you look at the power polls, everybody's putting them at like sixth or seventh and you know, fifth, sixth, seventh, like, hey, they're a contender, but they haven't looked that way in the preseason. Is there a team you're interested in learning about in week one? Uh, the 49ers are up there because we don't know if Trey Lance is good, right? Like, he hasn't really played much. He played a little bit last season, but we can't take away from that. So, yeah, I mean, just betting-wise, to be a seven-point favorite on the road and we know nothing about the quarterback seems pretty crazy to me. Uh, so the 49ers are definitely up there. I'm also very intrigued with the Broncos and I know it should be good with Russell Wilson I'm a big Russell Wilson fan but I just want to see if those weapons you know it's always been talked about the Broncos have a great roster besides the quarterback now they got the quarterback are they really going to be a Super Bowl contender I'm really intrigued by them I think it's going to be the Bills I think the Rams are too distracted spitting and all no not spitting I mean they've got like (laughs) The Rock Dwayne The Rock Johnson hitting the weights with their Aaron Donald ahead of the season opener. He's like cross-promoting his movie that's coming out, Black Adam. I just think there's there's a lot going on there to distract them from the actual football. That's my expert opinion. <laughs> and look, I, just, I think weird things happen. I said it last week. Weird ha- things happen in week one. But I, I don't know what's going to happen in that game. I think Buffalo is really good, but we've often seen teams that play deep in the playoffs or win the Super Bowl come back a year later, and they're just, they don't have it. Brian Lindgren, he is the offensive coordinator at Oregon State. He talked about the Oregon State defense, though, and how they create turnovers and get his offense the ball. Punch it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's nice. I think it just speaks to the defense, you know, and, and uh, in special teams. I think those guys... Uh, both of those units, um, anytime you create five turnovers and we had some awesome field position, that's just, it's just nice knowing sometimes you go three and out that you don't have to score and be perfect every time. And, and uh, yeah, I think it speaks to the uh, kind of the, the depth and experience that we've got in other areas of the program. And, 
yeah, it's, I mean, it's, that's, it's definitely a, a big deal. Yeah, it's the defense at Oregon State that I've been thinking about and uh, am now talking about, and that's a shift. If that continues, I think it'll be a good season for Oregon State. Dan Lanning, the Oregon football coach, says they got to be better. They got to practice better. They got to be better in the perimeter. Here's Lanning. Punch it. Not an unwillingness. It's not executing the technique properly, right? Every one of our players want to perform, perform well, right? They want to do a good job, right? There's a difference in wanting to do it and doing it. You have to take your weaknesses that you're not good at and work on it harder, right? Everybody wants to do what they're good at. Right, I want to go to practice and practice catching the ball from the wideout, right? Throwing, throwing touchdowns if I'm a QB, right? What they don't want to do is practice things they're not good at, and that's what we have to do: is practice what we're not good at. And if we're, until we get good at winning on the perimeter from a blocking standpoint and a block of destruction standpoint, tackling in practice and breaking tackling tackles in practice, then we're not going to do it in the game the way we want to do it. Dan Landing sounds like a coach who's focused and knows his team needs to play well. Oregon hosting Eastern Washington at Autzen Stadium on Saturday. Ed Orgeron, the former LSU coach, talked about his exit from LSU. He's speaking with the Little Rock Touchdown Club in Little Rock, Arkansas. Former LSU coach talking about the end of his tenure. He got fired, but he walked away with some money. Here's the cookie monster, Ed Orgeron. Punch it. We had a meeting. Say, coach, things are not going well. No shit. Ray Charles can see that, brother. <laughs> and they were good. And, and Scott Woodward is a friend of mine today. Really, really, a lot of respect for the way they handled me. So and what's uh, next? Well, well I got to tell you this, though. Say, Coach, you got $17.1 million on your contract. We're going to give it to you. <laughs> I said, what time do you want me to leave? What door you want me out of, brother? <laughs> Cookies! <laughs> wow. You never heard him talk before? No. <laughs> Finally, Brian Kelly, the new coach at LSU, had an awkward moment at his news conference as a reporter walked in right at the deadline. Might have been tardy. Might have been late. He tried to roast the reporter. The reporter fired back at him and said, maybe if you win, I'll be on time. Here's the exchange. Punch it. And, and now we're uh, excited about the weekend. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll open it up to this late arriving uh, media crowd that uh, must have uh, enjoyed the, the weekend. Um, that's usually $10 um, that we put in the kitty. Um, for, we'll have a big bash at the end of the year at my place. <laughs> But I don't think it has anything to do with winning. I think it has to do with being on time. All right, here we go. Brian right here. All right, Brian Kelly taking shots at the reporter who walked in late. Let's start with this. Let's unpack this a little bit. This will be the final bit of Punch It Audio, but let's unpack this. Reporter's late. That's unprofessional. I don't like that the reporter's late. I also don't like kind of like the way that Brian Kelly's talking to the reporter. He's lecturing her like it's dad dad time and the reporter is on the youngish side woman walking in i kind of wonder if he would have called out a guy in the same way um but i kind of felt like it was a bad bad performance by her to be late and then him calling attention to it and trying to roast her a little bit i i didn't like the way he did it and then when she fired back with maybe if you win i'll be on time 
I just never would have said that to a coach that I respected. Never would have said anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the context in situations is always important, right? So he's coming off of that rough start to the season. Yep. So he's already kind of testy and edgy in the news conference to begin with. And so I think he took a cheap shot at her. I think it happens. I, I mean, I, I, that happens in situations like that. I've been called out when we arrive late, and often it's nobody's fault. It's just you hit traffic or, you know, something happens. She said she way. was at a doctor's appointment. Yeah. So, um, so, I mean, he was clearly, like, publicly shaming her, but I don't know enough about him to know if he's just kind of cantankerous in general or if he was sort of saying it in jest. You I, know? I think he thinks he's funny, but he's not. He's uh -huh. one of those guys. Yeah. You know, because everybody laughs when you're the Notre Dame coach or the LSU coach. Everybody laughs at your jokes. Yeah. You start to believe you're funnier than you are. Okay. I think it could be a little bit of that. Um, I've only been around him once. He was fine. Mm -hmm. But I also, you know, the reporter tweeted after that she she went up and apologized to him after and said, I'm sorry I said that. Mm -hmm. And he joked with her and said, you still owe 10 bucks. And she said, I'm good for it, whatever. And they're cool. Yeah. But I still think it was a little bit of a bad look by her and him. I think it was like kind of mutually. It wasn't a good moment for either one of them. Yeah. But if his point was to sort of, you know, poke at her, then I don't know that it was necessarily wrong for him to for her to poke back at him verbally. I like, you think all, all is fair. I also would not have done it because yeah. that's not my personality especially in a situation like that. But I know there's going to be a contingent of people that will be like, good for her for standing up for herself to him. Right? Yeah. Well, I, what I, what I, is protocol of that situation? If you like, do you need to be there early or do people walk in late? I think if you walk in late, you can't be just, you can't be walking in a way that is distracting to the rest of the room. You Sometimes know? it's unavoidable, but if you are late, you've uh, ideally are finding some kind of back door to slip yeah. into and not, be highly noticeable as you arrive. Yeah, I don't know the setup there. I want your phone calls and your reaction to it. Who's in the wrong? 503-417-7575. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Talking about Brian Kelly, the LSU coach who called out a reporter and the reporter who fired back. Kelly said, uh, you know, basically said, get here on time. You're arriving late. The reporter said, I'll get here on time when you win. Uh, that interaction, I think both parties looked bad, but I want your reaction. Who uh, who got it wrong? 503-417-7575. Sean's and Sandy. Sean, who got it wrong? Hey, John, I think Coach Kelly got it wrong. You know, he, he should have just dismissed that and just uh, paid attention and just brought attention to the press conference. But he's trying to throw heat off himself. You know, right off the press conference, you know, he's just not even talking right. He didn't talk right at halftime. And unless he starts talking right, you know how LSU is. You know, coaches are hired to be fired. And he's going to be in the hot seat real soon in the next couple of years. It ain't going to work out too good for him. He ain't, a, he ain't part of that family. He ain't a member of that family. And a whole state of Louisiana will turn on him in the next year or two. Yeah. Have a good and, night. Have and as Ed Orgeron found out, you can win big and be shown the door there. Um, who got it wrong? Who's? Because I keep saying they both got it wrong. Mm -hmm. 
I want to put it on the reporter. I think it's bad for him to show up late, and I think it's bad for him to take a cheap shot. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong for saying that? No, I think both were not in their finest moment. But I think the reporter was worse. Really? Yeah. Do you think he says it if it's a man? I don't think. I, I don't know. I don't know. That's a big question. I haven't been around him enough to know that. I think the beat reporters who are around him all the time probably could answer that. And no, in fact, like one time I was interviewing Knight and I had my tape recorder too close to his face. And he said, if you don't get that damn tape recorder out of my face, I'm going to break it in half, knock it out of your hands. I didn't say to him, if you win, I'll move it. I said, sorry. And I put it back because I was wrong. I was too close to his face. Uh You know, I didn't realize I was shoving it in his face. Yeah. So I think you got to know your audience and know who you are and what you're doing there. Leave it here. You got the BFT. BFT from the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights. Here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. We've got the five at five, the five biggest stories going on in sports. You'll hear Pat Hill. The Fres- former Fresno State coach talking about Oregon State's visit to Bulldog Stadium in Fresno, where it's pretty much hot as hell right now. It was like 115 degrees there yesterday. It's, not, it's going to be in the 90s on Saturday. It'll probably be in the high 80s by the time they kick off the game in Fresno. But we'll give you the five at five. It's the five biggest stories going on in sports. All of that happening now. The five at five. Well, let's start with the NFL. The NFL week one kicking off Thursday night football Rams Bills. We talked about that game. You also have a highly anticipated matchup between the Seahawks and the Denver Broncos. 49ers playing at Chicago, a full slate of games and an opportunity for us all to immerse ourselves in college football on Saturday or maybe Thursday, Friday, Saturday and the NFL on Sunday and Monday, and Thursday. We have football almost every day of the week, and that's a good thing. For those of you out there that have endured the summer and endured the start of college football season, you will now be greeted with a full slate of football games. So much football in your life that you won't need anymore. Anna, number two in the five at five. Giddy up. I know we've probably talked about this, but I think it's pretty cool. Oregon State defensive back Jaden Grant and offensive lineman Brandon Kipper have both earned weekly honors from the Pac-12. Grant's been named the Pac-12's Defensive Player of the Week. Kipper, the Offensive Lineman of the Week. Both of them have earned their respective honors for the first times in their careers. The Offensive Player of the Week was Jaden Delora of Arizona. He'll get to play against the guy who recruited him at Washington State once upon a time, Mike Leach. So there are your Players of the Week in the Pac-12. Number three, Aaron Judge. Continuing his pursuit of history, the Yankees say that they are going to make him an all-time Yankee in the offseason. Team president Randy Levine said during an interview that the franchise will be, quote, extraordinarily competitive, end quote, in its approach to keeping the MVP candidate in pinstripes. They know his worth. They know what he means to the franchise. Judge turned down the Yankees' offer of seven years, $213.5 million earlier this year. He's looking for a more lucrative deal. Four-time All-Star, 
He's leading Major League Baseball. He's got 55 home runs. He hit number 55 today in a 5-4-12 inning win against the Twins. Also leads the Majors with 118 RBI. He is the greatest right-handed hitter in Yankee history. The single season record, now 55, eclipsing Alex Rodriguez's 54 home run season in 2007. Anna, number four. Well, the Ty Cobb T206 card. Now, that's like the holy grail for yeah. collectors. It's, you know, worth in the millions. Only about 50 of them reportedly exist. But if you want something a little different, there's another piece of Ty Cobb memorabilia that is hitting the auction block. It's his dentures, his actual false teeth. Huh? SCP Auctions currently has Cobb's false teeth, top and bottom, on the auction block, along with the original plaster denture holder and brass opening device. So if you want to have people over, show them your man cave and be like, hey, look what I've got. You can be the owner of Ty Cobb's dentures. I don't know that I want that. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, Fletcher Johnson. Oh. Who is a longtime part of this show, and uh, you can hear him on the Timbers pregame show. He doesn't wear Timbers. Now. No, he doesn't, but it reminds me of something, a story with him, once upon a time. When he was a kid, he was at Autzen Stadium, and you know how kids lean over the rail and they go, oh, give me your wristband, give me your gloves to the players? Yeah. Achilles Smith, the former Oregon quarterback, he had given away his wristbands, he had given away everything, he had nothing left. He gave Fletcher Johnson, young Fletcher, we'll call him Fletch. He gave him his mouthpiece. <laughs> Fletcher Johnson took that mouthpiece home, put it in a Ziploc bag, and hung it on his bedroom wall. I hope he More saliva it. stories. <laughs> I'm hoping. Back to the I got to ask him if he ever, did he ever put it in his mouth? If he put that thing <laughs> in a plastic bag and hung it up in his room, it would be a biology experiment. Yep. He did it. Achilles Smith's mouthpiece. In a Ziploc bag on his wall. Finally, the fifth thing in our 5 at 5 has to do with a $5 shot. That's right, a shot like you get in a bar. Atlanta United defender Miles Robinson was arrested. He's also a member of the United Men's National Team, by the way. He was arrested and charged with misdemeanor theft in Atlanta. Apparently, he was in a bar called PBR Atlanta right outside the Atlanta Braves home stadium and he grabbed a shot off a drink tray and slammed it the bartender alerted management who called the police they charged him they said all you have to do is pay for the drink and you can leave and he responded all of this over five dollars bro it was a five dollar shot he refused to pay for it and uh, he was charged with a misdemeanor theft over a $5 shot. That's the five at five. We do it every day. There must have been more to that story. Yeah, I think he got into it with the bartender. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, bartender doesn't react that yeah. way if I there think, wasn't a little pretext. I think there was a little bit of uh, back and forth that happened when it came to that shot. Um, I almost wanted to put this in the five at five, but Fresno State's former football coach, Pat Hill, who was quite a character. I covered that guy. 
He had a piranha in his tank. I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com. He had a piranha in his in his office that he would feed meat to. What? Why do you say it like that? Piranha. Piranha. I don't know why it's I say it like that. Piranha. I don't know. Because Same way you say Uber. Let's I, go get an Uber. Uber. Um, so I turn into a New Yorker when I uh-huh. say Uber or yeah. Piranha. Yeah. Okay. So here was the deal, though. Because Pat Hill was kind of, he was kind of a tough guy. Mm-hmm. Like he, he was like, I'll play anywhere, anywhere, anytime. Now, I think he had a little bit of an image problem because I think he probably should have got a Power 5 job. He's that good of a coach. He, he was the offensive line coach for the Baltimore Ravens in the NFL. He went to college ball. He ended up in Fresno coaching David Carr and Derek Carr and those Fresno State teams that would play anybody, anywhere, anytime. Uh, I asked Bill Hill one time, why do you schedule these games? He scheduled Ohio State. He scheduled Wisconsin. He wanted to play at USC. And he didn't do a home and home. He'd be like, I'll play there. I'll go to Ohio State. And he said, I said, why do you play these games? He says, what are they going to do? Eat you? Like, that was his, that was his mentality. Here he is talking about the Oregon State game because he's doing some TV and radio now. Uh, here is Pat Hill, the former Fresno State coach, talking about Bulldog Stadium and the crowd. And that's what we want again. We want to light this place up, right, Pat? It's going to be exciting. You know, this is, a, this is a team that comes in that plays a lot like Bulldog teams play. They play hard. Uh, they play with great effort. Uh, but this is a game that this is a game we got to get, and it's going to be up to the crowd. The crowd is the inspiration for this team. I remember walking down that ramp in 2001. Cam was with me. The stadium was packed. It was packed before the game started, and they went crazy. And it was a night to remember. Well, we'll talk to you fans. All right. So he's calling upon the memory of 2001 when Oregon State went to Bulldog Stadium. I was there that night, and Derek Anderson threw five interceptions. And Fresno State beat Oregon State. That was 21 years ago. After the game that night, Pat Hill, the head coach at Fresno State, coached the game. We're all up in the press box after the game. The post-game news conference is down by the locker room. Mm -hmm. He does the news conference. After the game, he's so excited that he won the game, he went up to the press box. All of us writers are on press row writing our stories, writing our columns. (laughs) Yeah. He's... Tapping us on the shoulder, going, how about that? How about that? <laughs> I've never seen a coach do anything like this. Jeez. He's a different animal. I would love to get him on the show. I'm trying to get him on Friday's show. But he is calling upon Bulldog fans to get in their seats and be there before the, before the team walks into the stadium. Uh, and I think they will get a pretty good crowd there for this game. Just the intimidation factor? I don't know. How much do you think the heat's going to affect the Beavers? I think it's a factor. Because that is a different kind of heat. Yeah, it's like being in an oven. Yeah. I'm worried about the heat for me, personally. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. worried about being there. My, yeah. Like my brother, who lives in the region, I called him today. I said, how hot is it? He said it was 115 yesterday. He's coaching today. Yeah, he's coaching a high school game today. He's yeah. coaching high school football. But he, he's. I said to him, he, he's going to the game as a fan. Yeah. And by the way, he's rooting for Oregon State because his kid is going to go to Oregon State. So I think he's going to be in some Oregon State gear. About that. So he's going to the game, and his oh, kid's he's going, not going to wear Oregon State. I don't know. Gear. I told not him in that crap. I, no way. I said you may get shanked in the yard. You better be careful there. <laughs> uh, but I said to him, like, what time are you guys going to the game? Yeah. Because you got seven thirty kickoff. I said to him, I like to get there about six o'clock. You know, I don't need to be there too long. I don't want to leave my good – I'm like a starting pitcher. I don't want my good stuff in the bullpen. Okay, so I want to walk into the stadium. And, by the way, I'm walking in there. I got. I can't wear shorts. 
I got to wear a button-up shirt. I got to wear a sport coat. I got to wear some slacks. So I don't want to be hanging out in 105 degrees in the parking lot for three hours before I have to do this, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I said to him, hey, can I catch a ride with you to the game? And then I said, but before I say that, <laughs> let me ask you what time you're going. He says they're going and they're going to tailgate and all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be doing that. Boy. I don't know if I'm up for that. Tailgating at 105 degrees. I'll be sitting in the freezer, <laughs> you know. I'm not going. Uh, I, how much of a factor will the heat be? I think it is a factor. It's a different heat, but I think Oregon State, it's not like it's 62 degrees here and tropical or whatever. It's like there's some healthy heat. We've had some healthy heat this summer, have we not? We have. We have. So that helps, I guess. But, like, you know, I was reading about San Diego State and how their first game is just being described as a disaster in so many ways because it was so hot. And there were so many fans that were complaining that there was no shade, not enough hydration, people being carried out in stretchers because they just couldn't handle it. It's like a concert. They were being baked yeah, in the I, sun. Yeah, I, I saw a video about this. Apparently their new stadium is just very, very poorly designed for the San Diego sun where there's just no protect, there's no shade in the entire stadium. And you're right, Anna, there was people getting carried off in stretchers. Current temperature right now in Fresno, 109. Oh, <laughs> Can you imagine gearing up and all that, the pads and the, I just, uh, uh, that's, how do you prepare for that? Yeah. How yeah, do you honestly, like you if don't. you're beavers, how do you prepare for you that? You don't, but here's the deal. Today is, the high is 111, tomorrow is 109. <gasps> that's crushing. Friday is 107, Saturday is 90, the high is 90. Oh, okay, reprieve. So, there's the reprieve. I got to think, if the high Saturday is 90, that game's going to kick off, it's going to be in the mid to high 80s. When that okay. game kicks off at 7.30. Okay. It's that valley heat. Still still in the 80s, man. You better start hydrating right now. We're going to talk to Jaden Grant on tomorrow's show. I'm going to ask him, is he hydrating? Is he getting his jamba on? He better. <laughs> it's going to be hot. All right, leave it here. you got the BFT, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach, coming up. I'll ask him. Why not? What are you going to do about the heat, coach? Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, coming up bottom of the hour. He'll be here at 530 in the next segment. We'll talk about the Week 2 matchup for Oregon State as they travel to Fresno State. The Ducks are home against Eastern Washington. Portland State on the road against Washington. Some big Pac-12 games, and I want to turn the focus to the Stanford-USC game in this segment, but some big Pac-12 games, including uh, Arizona playing and hosting uh, Mississippi State and Mike Leach and Arizona State on the road at Oklahoma State. Those Arizona schools are going to be interesting to see what they do. I think for the Pac-12 to have a successful weekend, um, it, it, it needs to win the obvious games. Like, I think Oregon State going to Fresno State and winning would be big for the Pac-12. I think uh, the ability, obviously, for teams like Washington and Oregon to take care of the Big Sky opponents that they're playing, uh, that's obvious. Like, you know, avoid the embarrassments. Beyond that, I'm kind of torn on, you know, what's good for the conference versus what's good for the perception of the conference. And what I mean by that is I think what would be really good for this conference, obviously, is for USC to emerge as a playoff candidate. But I also think 
that this conference may have some other ideas. Like, I'm not sure USC's ready to contend on that level. And so there's part of me that is watching this USC-Stanford game going, this is a really interesting game. Like, you know, you, you have a quarterback in Tanner McKee at Stanford who's very good. You have USC, obviously, with Caleb Williams. Uh, you have the country, you know, looking at USC as a top-10 team. But I am with those who are on upset alert here, and I'm kind of wondering, is it possible, guys, that the Pac-12 could have a great weekend? Let's just say Arizona State upsets Oklahoma State or Arizona beats Mississippi State. Has a great weekend. Everybody takes care of business, but Stanford beats USC. Is that a bad week for the Pac-12? Yeah, I think it would be perception-wise nationally because at that point – your top three teams in the conference all have one loss. And then there is that argument of, well, can they even get back into that college football playoff picture, right? I mean, I think that Utah probably can get back in there with one loss. It's going to be tough depending on a lot of things have to happen. Um, same with Oregon. Like, they're going to have to look really good to get back in that picture. So if USC, same thing. If they lose again to Stanford, I don't know if they're going to get back in that picture. And like you said, there's even three games this week where Pac-12 teams are double-digit underdogs. They can win all three of those, but if USC loses to Stanford, nobody's going to take the Pac-12 seriously as a college football playoff threat. Yeah, the Pac-12 is in a really interesting spot after Week One, considering Oregon lost and Utah lost. And you know, when you go into the season, you think the three playoff contenders are Utah, Oregon, and USC. And so now it's just USC that has zero losses and. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting spot to to be rooting for USC because the ultimate goal is to have someone in the playoff, you know, just one team. But if that someone is USC who's right. leaving in two years, then it's like, does it, does it even bode well for the Pac-12? Yeah, because I think the narrative would be that's not that is a Pac-12 team for now. Look at the rest of them. Look at the rest of those losers. They can't get anywhere near the playoff. Uh, I I think, you know, I think a one-loss conference champion is probably – in the playoff. And I think history has shown us that you can have one loss, you can be a conference champion, and you can be one of those top four teams. But the problem that the Pac-12 has is that historically, at least in the last 11 years, uh, nobody's run the table since Oregon did it in 2010. And so we kind of look at it and go, hey, it's really hard to get through the conference schedule unscathed. Now, that said, in the last two seasons, the Pac-12 has changed some things. They're tweaking some things to give some advantages to the programs that they consider contenders. Uh, and, you know, they may not have foreseen Washington having the fall off it had last year, but the schedule makers do not have Washington playing USC. They do not have them playing Utah. They get through the regular season with only having to play Oregon. Uh, if you are um, a Pac-12 fan, I think there's uh, I think a large part of the Pac-12 will be rooting for Stanford in this game, and I think Stanford's capable of putting some scare into USC. I got a lot of friends who are Stanford fans that I grew up around, or maybe they attended there. I know some people that attended Stanford, and they all um, believe that Stanford's going to have a bounce-back season this year. But I, I have very few of them that can that are seeing Stanford beating USC. I don't know if I'm ready to pick it outright, but. I like Stanford in points in this game because I don't trust USC. I, I, I haven't seen them yet in a game against a team that can line up with two tight ends and try to run it at you like Stanford might try to do, and I haven't seen them stop a team in this era, and I would like to see that before I uh, 
before I believe in USC. I'm 100% with you on that, John. I mean, I'll definitely be taking points on that one. I probably will throw a little bit on the money line because I do think that Stanford has a chance, and the way that they play goes against what USC has been for so long. And I know that Lincoln Riley brought in a lot of new players, new, new strategies, but defensively for USC, they have not been physical. We saw it last year. Oregon State went down to L.A., just demolish them on the ground at the, at the line of scrimmage. Stanford's going to try to do the same exact thing. That's what Stanford does. So I'm with you. I could see it happening where Stanford slows the game down and they just methodically run the ball down USC's throat. And then when USC has the ball, Caleb Williams is going to feel like he has to make a big play. He has to score quickly. And that's not necessarily the best strategy. So there is a way I see Stanford winning this game. Um, but I do think it's going to be close for sure. I, Stanford in USC's next six games, it goes like this. It goes at Stanford. They get Fresno State at home. They're at Oregon State. They're home against Arizona State. They're home against Washington State, and they're at Utah. I think USC is going to lose at least two of those six games. I think that you know, it's possible they could lose three because I think Stanford, Fresno State, Oregon State, there's a loss in there somewhere. And I think Arizona State, Washington State, Utah, there's a loss in there somewhere, probably Utah. So I could see USC – kind of arriving at the midpoint of their season with two losses, at least two losses uh, facing the home stretch, and and the rest of the country kind of going, oh, it's not time yet. I think I think USC is going to be good. I just I, I got to see it. I got to see them able to handle a legit run game. Now, will they get that test against Stanford? I don't know. Will they get it in two weeks against Oregon State at Corvallis? I don't know because Oregon State surprised me a little bit in their opener. They didn't run the ball in Boise State like I thought they would. Yeah, Jack Coletto was the leading rusher in that game. And I know Jonathan Smith was surprised about that. Yeah, I mean, Oregon State, they came out and kind of threw the ball down the field a little bit, especially in the first half. So can they realize that that was kind of their identity a season ago when they do play USC and they can smash it down their throats? I mean, I think USC, you know, you got to be physical against them because they have really good athletes, but you got to try to out-physical, and that's the way to beat them. I'm eager to see this game. That's the game I really want to watch. Other... Pac-12 games this weekend that I think are interesting. Washington State's going to Wisconsin. Nobody's talking about this game. I I feel like Washington State did not play well in the opener against Idaho, and it's probably why nobody's talking it. Wisconsin's a 17-and-a-half-point favorite. To your point yesterday, Stephen, you were talking about kind of the overreaction with the lines. This one feels a little overreactive to me. Like, I, I do think Washington State will play much better. But I don't know if 17-and-a-half is enough at Wisconsin. Yeah, it seems a little crazy to me, to be honest. 17 and a half, Wisconsin's not a high-scoring team, and I know Washington State's going to turn the tempo up a little bit, so there could be some turnovers, some things like that. But, I mean, 17 and a half points is a lot of points uh, to anybody, especially in a Power 5 team. I, you know, The more I thought about it, the more I like Washington State, plus the points in that one. We still don't know exactly what Cam Ward is. I mean, we, we didn't see anything that we needed to see against Idaho because it's Idaho. So we didn't learn anything from that, but this is going to be a tough test for him. And, you know, I have a lot of faith in Jake Dickert and his coaching staff, so I think Washington State can keep it close. Uh, I think Wisconsin will win, but it could be, you know, maybe just two scores rather than three. Yeah, here's your three-team parlay. It's Washington State plus 17.5. It's Colorado plus 17.5. And, mm. and it's Stanford plus nine or more, whatever that line goes to. How about that? I, I don't know if I agree with the Colorado one. I know it's Air Force, but, I mean, Colorado's kind of poor i got colorado capable of getting 20 points in that game so can air force can air force get to 38 i don't think so 
yeah, I mean, not the way they play. I don't know. I tell you what, I like the other two you talking about. I, I don't feel comfortable with that third one. John, here's a question for you based on week one. Out of the Mountain West, we we know that San Diego State and Boise State didn't look good at all in week one. Do you think it's a Fresno State runaway, or you know, could a team like Air Force, just based on what you're seeing out of that conference right now? I think it's too early, but it, the you know the returns in week one were not good for the Mountain West. They, it was a it was a historically bad first week for them. Like they didn't have their characteristic wins, and I think it's going to be really interesting if Fresno State loses to Oregon State. It just the narrative could be that. The Mountain West just has a bad down year. Like that could be Boise State's not Boise State. If Fresno State under Jeff Tedford, if they don't have it in this Oregon State game, I think the narrative we're going to hear after two weeks is, gosh, that conference is down. Jonathan Smith's next. I'm going to ask him how are the Beavers going to handle the heat and what happened to the run game in week one? We'll talk to the Beavers coach coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Oregon State coach Jonathan Smith joins us every Wednesday on the show. Current temperature in Fresno, uh, about 109 degrees. They have a high of 111 today. It's not going to be as warm on Saturday. Coach, how are you preparing for the heat? How do you Can you prepare for the heat? Well, I think uh, the heat around here is helping us out, man. It's getting a little warmer. <laughs> um, but we're definitely talking about hydration and, and preparing for that. And, it, you know, it's a factor. You don't want to overcoach it. I mean, let's face it, these, some of our roster, they played in hot weather growing up, high school, this and that. But So trying to hydrate, appreciate, and then it's hot around here and and letting it, letting it go on Saturday night. Give me an idea because, you know, there's, there's a fan reaction, overreaction that always happens in week one as a coach. You obviously want to win, but how do you kind of redirect your guys pretty quickly and get them, like, you know, not ready to throw a parade? Hey, it was a win, it was nice, but now comes week two. Yeah, I think you even talked about that before you play the first game of, uh, you know, obviously each, each week you're trying to win a game and really proud of the guys finding a way to do it, uh, pointing out multiple ways that we got to be able to improve, which we had plenty of examples of that. And, and, you know, you don't make your season by winning your, your first game. You know, long season, long games. Um, and, again, I go back to the maturity we've got, uh, I feel like, on this team currently. I think these guys will be locked in for the long haul. Yeah, and I think, you know, you, got, you guys, you talk about, as coach, you probably think about things you did wrong, but you did a lot right in this game. All the big plays, I think, you know, it was, uh, as, an, as a team, you averaged about 19.5 yards per completion, which is phenomenal. You had a bunch of big plays. Uh, you had to feel good about that. Yeah, because you do. You, you can be explosive offensively. You can make up for some errors. Now, we had plenty of them in the second half, but there's no question. Early on, hitting some big plays, getting up, keeping the crowd in it, the way our defense was playing, there was a lot to like with that. Uh, but at, like you mentioned, as the coach's angle, you know, you get in the second half, and, and some of the things we got to do better if we're going to try to have the season we want to have, we got to clean it up. Jack Coletto just keeps making plays. Guy's a football player. Um, you know, how do you, like, as a coach, you want to utilize him. You want to get the most out of him. But how do you, uh, I guess, keep him fresh and healthy amid the work that he's getting on both sides of the ball? 
Yeah, it, it's not easy to do because he's getting a bunch of work, and it's not just the both sides. Oh, indeed, he's playing on every special team as well. And he had a you know opening kickoff. He has a tackle, um, and so we've got our eyes on it. It's not just the body demands of getting reps on all three phases. It's the mental aspect too of knowing the playbook on both sides of the ball and special teams. It's impressive what he's been able to do. Uh, so we're trying to be cognizant of it, but at the same time, we want to keep him on the field because he's that effective. Fresno State, uh, under Jeff Tedford, they're very good. They're great on offense. That's a tough place to play. Uh, you know, I've seen uh, Oregon State teams go in there and not fare well. Uh, what are you expecting Saturday in Fresno? Yeah, I think the crowd's going to be electric. I think they're going to be excited for it, close to a sellout they're talking about, uh, expecting a really good team. Uh, you mentioned it offensively, the ability to score. Quarterback's really good. They got some athletes on the outside. They got some elite coaching on the offensive side. Defensively, you look at them. A lot of the returning players got a couple transfers in. Physical, challenge you, and so yeah, it's going to be a tough test. Which you know, in some ways, our guys are really excited about. They understand how difficult things can go, but that's the type of team you want to play and challenge yourself early in the season. You, as an assistant at Boise State, you had a chance to go in there and did you play games there? Do you? You know that walk from the locker room down the hill, down into the stadium, and the fans and all that stuff? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that as a player, as a graduate assistant, as assistant at Idaho, assistant at Boise. Uh, that's, again, that's part of the atmosphere of that place. It's a long walk from the locker room. The fans are going to let you know that, you know, they're there and they don't want you to be there and, and whatnot. And uh, that adds to the, you know, pageantry of college football. That's why it's a fun place to play. You guys struggled to run the ball a little bit, and it, that jumped out at me. You threw it all over the place. You had success there. Was it something that Boise State was doing? Is Was it missed assignments and execution by you guys? What did you see on film? Yeah, especially in the first half. I give a lot of credit to Boise in regards to stopping the run game, and I think that's some of the reason we were able to throw it down the field with some you know, with some success is because they were, were planning to stop the run game. I thought we got a couple things going in the second half, but then it turned into self-inflicted with our penalty end. Um, and so, look, you anticipate week one, you're going to have some issues to clean up, and one of those is our consistency in the run game. The running back by committee, are you comfortable doing it that way this year? Or do you, would you prefer to see one guy kind of emerge as your back? I'm, I'm comfortable early on in the season to do it by committee, almost equal. All, you know, we had three guys carrying it pretty much and equal across the board. Um, as you get into the season, yeah, you'd like to have one guy kind of separate. Not that he'd get all the carries, but, you know, have a you know a lead dog and then a number two and a number three. And, it, and you know, it might play out that way. I'm not going to panic if it doesn't because I do think we've got multiple guys that are pretty good with Fenwick and Damian had some good carries for a true freshman first college game, Trey Lowe. Had some good carries, but you'd like to maybe have a, a go-to guy number one by by midseason. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach, is with us, going to Fresno State on Saturday. You guys were six and zero at home last year. You know what I'm going to say next? One and six away from Research Stadium. You guys have talked about this. How important is it for you for you to play well in this game and and to feel like the program has taken a step forward in that way? Yeah, we we would definitely want to make some strides. You know, each year is new. Uh, just like our message even before this last game, yeah, we were great at home last year, but this is a brand new year, and so we got to go put it on tape and, and, and play well. We did that at home, found a way to continue the win streak at home. And so this is a new new opportunity and a new season 
to go down and, and play on the road against a really good team and um, compete and, and learn from it. Because um, I do think all this stuff continues to help us prepare for Pac-12 play. Did, you, did it feel weird to you to have half the stadium last week? Or at, at what point did you kind of forget about that and just focus on coaching? Yeah, you know, early on, I definitely recognized kind of from our sideline looking over at that stadium getting built on the other side, on the west side. Uh, but once you get into this game, it felt very, very similar. I, mean, I thought we got awesome energy from behind us, which is normal. You know, student section on into the place. I thought, you know, pretty much every seat is taken. And there was there was energy there, scoreboard, brand new, re- replays, and, and all of that. So I thought it was great atmosphere. I think it was a, a home field advantage. You know, it's interesting because everybody was asking you, and I think I was guilty of this too, everybody's asking you, do you have a guy that can take the top off of defense? You guys did that against Boise State. How does that help you in week two? Because I'm thinking if Fresno State watches that tape, they're going to go, I mean, they're going to be talking to their safeties in the corners about, hey, we can't give up those big plays. Yeah, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a chess match in football in general. Like, you know, you, the safety or the corner stay on top on, on things. Well, if you're going to do that, then when we hand the ball off, we got two guys that are 25 yards deep. And so it's just some back and forth. And, and again, you got to be able to hit them on it, which we were able to do early on. Um, but that's some of the strategy of football. It almost comes as simple as that. If we hand it off, do you got enough numbers to be able to tackle our back? And vice versa, if we play action pass, you got enough numbers to take, you know, the deep deep throw away. You guys are sitting in a position, you know, you've never been one and zero. You're one and zero now. How does that feel? There's no question. You feel good that you win a game. Uh, again, I I tried to either way. This thing's gone each year. Uh, you know, first games are what they are, and you, you try to compete and obviously win them. But if you don't, there's a whole lot of football left, and and I feel the same way this year. Yeah, we won the first game, but there's just a ton of football left. You guys, uh, you know, as you prepare for a season, I, I'm sure that, you know, you you map it all out, what you're going to do in practice. Does anything that happens in week one, game one, change what you do as a team? Or do you sort of just adjust and go, look, uh, we need to work on this facet of the game? I guess, do you know what I'm saying there? Like, you know, yeah. th- I think there would be a temptation if something didn't go right to kind of say, we need to throw that out, and we need to, you know, do something different. But I, I don't know if that would be the right reaction. Yeah, I'm with you. I think after one game, the drastic changes is not the reaction we're going to have. Again, you know, slight adjustments without question. Uh, we're looking for game one to game two improvement, even in the rotations, you know, offense, defense, depth chart-wise. Again, we're looking for improvement. We're not wholesale changing just because a couple of whatever calls on offense or defense didn't work we're not throwing them out of the playbook uh we're, we're going to try to clean them up now you get reoccurring theme after the weeks two three four and then yeah we'll, we'll readjust there but after one game no we're not we're not making wholesale changes kids are in school your kids my kids are yeah, yeah. not the uh, guys on the team but my kids our first day today how was that well, I'm waiting to get the report. Be honest with you, I'm watching film, all of that. I haven't checked in yet. Yeah, good uh, luck. But I got was, a couple texts, yeah. a couple thumbs up. I think it's been okay. Yeah, you're going to get – how was school? Fine. That's what I got today. Yeah. Fine. Oh, yeah. You know? I get a couple teenagers now, and that's all I get. It's like, hey, tell me about your day. Yeah, it's good. That's do you it. do you guys do the picture out front, like first day of school picture? <laughs> that's funny you'd say that because my wife sent me the text the first day. Yes, yeah. they're out there and they got their you know, outfits or whatever they wore. I got all three kids' pictures. Oh. Um, 
I don't remember doing that when I was growing up. No. Honest, maybe we did, but we're, the Smith household's definitely doing it with my I wife. Talking, I was talking to my parents about that. You know, when I went to college, I, I drove off. My parents, I, I, lo- I watched them. They didn't even stand there and wave. They turned around and walked in the house. Nowadays, yeah. what do we do? We, we drive them to the doorstep. We walk into the dorm room with them. We make sure they have everything they need. I think we're, we're raising soft kids, Coach. Oh, I'm, I'm with you because I didn't even look at the like household chores that I did growing up compared to what my kids got going. You know, just simple tasks of like, hey, let's take the trash out. Let's, you know, you can wash your plate and put it in the dishwasher. You know, stuff I grew up doing. Yeah. Now I feel like we're not holding them accountable to do it. Chance Nolan uh, was very good. He had one one bad throw he probably wanted to have back. I think he was trying to throw that ball away that got picked, was he? Yeah, he was. And, he, you know, watching the tape, he's getting a little bit of pressure. But, again, it's about the ability to make a – don't make a bad play worse. And so he's got to do that. He's got to lock the ball up. He got bailed out big time on the pump fake yeah. uh, that he fumbled on. It, they called a forward pass. And so just like anybody – Every position had things to clean up. There was a couple things for chance. But overall, as efficient he was, as accurate he was, he got us in the right place. Um, there was some a lot of like uh, a lot of things to like in his, his first game. Do you you know do you relate because because you played the position? You know I, I've watched him a couple times, and I think sometimes he's trying so hard to make a play. Maybe he tries a little too much, and you know it happened in the Washington game last year. He fumbled the ball. And I see him, like, he doesn't give up on a play, which is great. But how do you coach a guy like that to to do the smart thing when the play isn't there? Yeah, it's not always easy um, because, again, some of his, you know, positives of his game is his ability to create, extend the play, and you want a competitive kid who wants to, you know, find ways to get it done. But sometimes, you know, there's some beauty to throwing it away. There's some beauty to punting. You know, it's just not there. we got to live to the next down. Um, so there's a fine balance that's that's not easy to coach. Coach, uh, I, I wish you well on Saturday. If there's one area where you just you guys need to be good, where is that area of emphasis? Yeah, well, there, there's a few of them. I do think you know being a, we got to be able to affect their passer in regards to making him uncomfortable. We don't have to sack him all the time, but if he gets comfortable throughout this game, we're going to have problems. He's accurate. He's got a lot of athletes to throw to. Flip it on the other side. I think the efficiency handling, the communication, especially early first road game, all of that, having some efficiency so we're on the field, get our run game going because everything can go. If we're running the ball, we get got a lot of options to throw it, screen game, but staying on the field offensively is going to be huge. All right, Coach, I wish you the best. I will see you there. I will be there. I think, right. it's, I think it's a big game, and uh, we'll talk again next week. I appreciate you. Yeah, sounds good, John. Thanks. All right, there's Jonathan Smith. It's the first day of school. See? I like that. Gets the kids out front, gets the teenagers out front, gets the school picture. I like that we do that, but I'm also kind of going, you know what? My parents, they didn't take my picture every day. I didn't get no... I didn't get this little board that said Johnny's in the third grade and this is his first day and here's the date. Nope, nope, nope. My parents, they said, hey, the bus picks you up about two or three blocks from here down by the highway. You can walk down there and uh, make sure you make the bus. Then I had about a 40-minute bus ride. I don't know, Stephen. Are we raising soft kids? I mean, I think you know where I'm going to go on this one. Um, I'm not a huge (laughs) fan of... Like uh, taking the taking the pictures. My wife, you know, she took she didn't have the board in front of my kids, but she took a picture of it before the year. Uh, but I dropped him off at school, and she said, 
Stephen, make sure you take a picture of him. And I go, do I have to? And she said, yes, you have to take a picture <laughs> at school. So I did it. I went out and I followed him, uh, walked towards school. I took a picture of him. And I, I did it because I had to, but I, I didn't like doing it. Now, I have a question also. I asked Sean this because it's my anniversary tomorrow, John. 10-year oh. ten, ten year anniversary. Oh, yeah. Do I need to make a post because it's a 10-year? Yeah, do it. I have What's to? the harm? What's the harm? Like, it's it's all upside, man. It's a lot of work, man. It's it's not a lot of work. I got to go find pictures. No, you just need one photo. Just put a photo from, you know, your wedding or your wife, a photo you like, and just be like, hey, a decade, you know. I dig you. Uh, you know, yeah, something, man. It's all upside. All right. There's no, there's no downside here. All right. Well, there's that's two votes. Yes, I, I guess I'll do it. Yeah. So, since I just I gave in already this week, I'm just gonna give in to all the peer pressure this week. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, we're gonna we're we're gonna get you fixed up, Stephen. Uh, all right. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald face truth. Peter Sampson's coming up top of the hour with the pulse. Talk Timbers today. Talk Timbers is coming up top of the hour. Uh, you got the bald face truth. The Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I like Oregon State to win at Fresno State. Am I nuts? Stephen, am I nuts for picking the Beavers? Uh, no, and this is coming from a guy who thought Boise State was going to win last week. I mean, Oregon State, they played really well. Um, I think that they definitely have a chance to win this game. I I think it's a legit toss-up. I would not be surprised either way, whoever was in the game, but it seems like it's going to be a close game. Uh, but it's like we've always talked about this whole day. Can't Oregon State get that big one on the road? They've had so much trouble doing it in the past. they got to do it this week, and uh, it could definitely happen. Sean, who do you like? I, I seriously, I said this last week, and I feel like it's kind of a cop-out, but I seriously think it's a coin toss. And, you know, what, what would worry me uh, as a Beaver fan would be the fact that you know, if this is Fresno State's get-up game, like they play in the Mountain West, and this is another school that you know probably has interest in joining the Pac-12. They have not only a Pac-12 team, but a, a formidable, like borderline top 25 Pac-12 team going to their stadium. And you know, they obviously have a great quarterback and great coach. That being said, you know, I think Oregon State—they're really clicking right now. So, uh, you know, I like I like Oregon State in a close one. Here's, you know, I I spent almost three years there covering Fresno State sports. And, you know, it was one of my six papers that I stopped at. And what I gathered pretty quickly was how important that game was to the kids who played at Fresno State. And when they when they played a Power 5 conference opponent, and whether it was Wisconsin or Colorado or Cal or it didn't matter, Ohio State, I, I was there when they went to Ohio State uh, and lost, but they stuck their nose in there. They hung in there. And... I what I gathered pretty quickly was these games were big. And that's why these Mountain West teams like Boise State and Fresno State, I think, are so dangerous in bowl games. Because they're often playing like the fourth or fifth or sixth place team from a power five conference and they just clean up. They, because the game means everything to those kids. I normally would be really concerned about Oregon State going in there because of that. But when you look at Fresno State's schedule, they have USC next week and i think that game is going to mean a whole bunch more to those kids and so i'm not saying they're going to look past oregon state necessarily but i think it takes some of that get up out of you know fresno state's giddy up so to speak 
So I feel like there could be not as much enthusiasm for this game as there will be for the kids from L.A. in particular who are Fresno State kids who are got that chip on their shoulder that I wrote about today at johnconzano.com that, you know, they have that chip on their shoulder. This is their game. You heard Cameron Worrell talk about it yesterday, the Fresno State safety who played in the NFL. It's us against the world. That's their mentality. Backs to the wall. Nobody believes in us. I kind of think that narrative is going to be saved for next week in the minds of those kids. And so I wonder if this game flies a little bit under the emotional radar, so to speak. Is that a good theory? No, I think I think it's right on. I think you're good with that. Um, and that's a real thing. You know, I was just telling Sean during the break when I was at school, and I went to Concordia, so I was a you know, way smaller yeah. school than Fresno State, but we played uh, Oregon and Oregon State in exhibition games, and I remember going down to Corvallis. We played in Oregon State. They were coming off the year where they won zero games in the Pac-12, and they just hired Craig Robinson. I thought for sure I was going to go down there and score 25 and win the game, and we were going to beat Oregon State. And I got I, I overhyped myself. I had one point in the entire game, and I was bad. And I think that could happen. Not saying again, like you said, not saying that's going to happen for Fresno State that they're going to overlook Oregon State, but it does happen where you feel like you're slighted because you are not that level, and you want to prove that you can play at that level. Yeah, Bobby Knight, and not to bring him up, name drop him throughout the show today, but you know the the season I covered Indiana basketball. He said the hardest game they have all year is when they play Indiana State. And he said every one of those kids is pissed off that we didn't recruit them. Every one of those kids is playing like it's, you know, the biggest game of the year. And the Indiana guys that were all, you know, four and five star recruits are all going, it's just Indiana State. It's not a big deal. And so he, in that game, you know, every year, Indiana State would be leading after 10 minutes, you know, the first 10 minutes of the game because those kids were coming out playing on adrenaline. They were all fired up and flying around. I think there's 100% there's something to that, the psychological makeup of it. We see it every year with Boise State, Fresno State, San Diego State. When, when they get in those games against the Power 5 opponents, they play their ass off. But I kind of think the Fresno State kid is looking to the L.A. game uh, you know, a week later. Now, that'll be up to Jeff, Jeff Tedford and Jake Hayner, who, you know, they're no slouch, but I think Oregon State's going to run the ball this game. I think they're going to win it. Uh, I I wouldn't, uh, you know, what the spread, what is it, one, one and a half now? Yeah, it's right around that. They give me a pick. It depends on where you're shopping. For the I, I, like Oregon, I like Oregon State. I, I just think they're going to win the game, and I, I think they're a better team. All right, Todd Timbers is coming up here in Portland on 750 The Game. Jeff Tedford on tomorrow's show, the Fresno State coach. We'll talk to him about it. Is it possible his kids are looking beyond the Oregon State game? All that tomorrow.